Let's go out to the movies, grab some popcorn and cookies. Let's go out to the movies, and let's all have a snack, yeah. What's up everybody, this is Vinny Bucci, aka The Booch, and welcome to The Boochcast. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we are continuing our Boochcast Goes to the Movies compilation. Uh, we managed to get uh, two of our reviews on there last week. We had uh, Tango and Cash and The Matrix. Well, now we're going to keep this party train a-rolling with the next movie review, and that is, of course, the movie Punchline. So you guys sit back and enjoy this classic boot. 
Boochcast segment right after this. Speaking of marriage, I'm married to a Polish man. I don't know if you know Polish men, but he gave me something long and hard when we got married. You know what? Yeah, a last name. <laughs> oh, you heard that one, huh? I hate Wilma Flintstone. I want to talk about it. I think she's a fucking bitch. I'm from right here in New York from a large family. There's 10 kids in my family, man. That's a lot of kids, Jack. My father had stretch marks. There's a bunch of us. I know you're all staring at me thinking, my God, look at this girl. She looks so much like Diana Ross. I can't get over it. I'm going to do an impression of Gandhi's mother. <laughs> Sweetheart, please. Just the sandwich? <laughs> My wife bought alligator gloves. I said, what are you going to do with alligator gloves? She'll put them on. I'll tell them I got a skin condition. Have you tried leech off? Leech off? Yes, leech off works naturally with hydrochloric acid. Just a few drops in each eye. You can kiss those leeches goodbye. We were making love the other night. I felt he was holding back. So I said, sweetheart, we've been married for 15 years. When we make love, I don't want you to hold back. I want you to do whatever you want to do. So you know what he did? He threw up. <laughs> the thing about being married to a Polish man, you think that it would be like being married to anyone else. First physical contact I had with a woman came very early in life. I saw this girl dancing, and I went up and bit her in the chest. Slaughter, huh? They're saving the whales, they're saving the seals, but nobody gives a shit when they kill a baby polyester just to make a... Hollywood's contact. newest concept for a wax museum comes from an ear doctor who treats the stars. I don't want to argue with you, please, with the stereotypes. Chinese people are excellent drivers, fine. A lot of Jewish people pick up a check, fine. A lot of Japanese tourists have no photo equipment. They have big dicks, fine. Listen, you'll like this. It works in my history class. Okay, Nathan Hale, who said, I only have one life. Listen, I can wait. I'm waiting. I have all the time. Hello, and welcome back to the Boochcast. During the break, we played basically the opening credits to the hit 1988 movie Punchline, starring Tom Hanks and Sally Field. And the reason I played the opening credits for this movie is because there's no soundtrack for this movie. In fact, there's some music in here, but a lot of it is either not interesting or you can't even find it. Like the only thing they have in there is that one traditional song, you know, that song that's basically on there but i didn't want to play that for an insane period of time um but i did uh find one other song that was played in this movie that's going to be uh the outro song for this first half of the booch cast but because i couldn't play the soundtrack i thought it was fitting to play the opening credits to kind of give you guys an idea of what this movie's about and also what you saw in that opening scene was the regulars of this comedy club 
you know, there's Sally Field who's telling a joke about the Polish man that's hack. Everybody's heard that joke. Then you got the other comedians that have their own way of doing things. And you notice some few guest appearances. And a lot of the comics that are in this movie playing comedians are actual stand-ups. The only two people in this uh, movie who weren't actual stand-ups performing were Tom Hanks and Sally Field. Although they did get a crash course in comedy and and took some comedy classes in order to better understand the material and get it done. And they did write some of their own material, or and some of them were written in the script for them. So they were able to come up with some material. And obviously, they had help from other comedians to help them polish their material. Now, obviously, there's one the comedian that does an impression of, you know, Gandhi's mother. Another, there's another old guy on there that talks about alligator skins, and you know, the guy does the whole "Have you tried leech off?" Like they were all doing different versions of how a comedian performs, you know, and every different type of, you know, race, ethnicity, or certain ways of doing things and then they have um barry sobel on there doing some of his classic material that he's known for doing because uh, in the 80s barry sobel was a popular comedian that toured the country he was on the the rodney Dangerfield, um you know showcase that's where he got his big break and then he's toured across the country still performs a lot today um minus the pandemic of course but he still is able to make a living uh, i know a long time ago barry sobel came to atlanta and apparently the atlanta and the comics didn't warm up too well to him from what I've heard a lot of people didn't like Barry Sobel but he can be very talented and funny and uh, I enjoyed him and then of course Damon Wayans is in here because Damon Wayans is a stand up uh, they also have the, the guy on there that tells the joke from his history class and he goes you know please listen and then at one point he goes I'll wait I'll wait I have all the time which is basically what he would say in a comedy class but everybody's throwing stuff at him so he's the guy that's like struggling with the material and struggling to get laughs from an audience. And anyway, these are the main regulars at this comedy club, so you see the majority of them performing throughout the movie along with the story that goes around it. So they're the comics that you only see them performing in the club. They're not in any other scenes in this movie. They're not anywhere else. The only two people that you see in any other scene are Sally Field and Tom Hanks. Outside of that, you only see these guys either performing at the comedy club or hanging out backstage. And also, I like this opening credit scene because it really teaches you what these stand-up comedians do and how they practice and get their material and how they develop who they are. And that was the opening credits to the movie Punchline here on the Boochcast. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to kick off our segment, Elvis and Booch Go to the Movies. Let's go out to the movies. Buy some popcorn and cookies. Let's go out to the movies and let's all have a snack. Yeah. Alright, now normally, ladies and gentlemen, that is the portion of the show where Elvis Delinsky would be joining me and he would sing uh, the theme song that he wrote for this uh, particular segment, Elvis and Booch Go to the Movies. But sadly, Elvis will not be joining me this week for Elvis and Booch Go to the Movies. Now, he will be joining me on part two for the recap of AEW, so don't worry, he will be there for the AEW recap. But he's not going to be joining me for this because here's the issue. When Elvis approached me with the idea to do this segment, and we were planning it and planning it before we ultimately decided on the first two movies we were going to do, he basically asked me to make a list of my top five 
favorite movies of all time. That was ultimately the goal. He wanted to hear my top five favorites. So I listed them. And I listed the movie Punchline, the movie Eight Mile, the movie Tango and Cash, Cocktail, and Goodfellas. Those were my top five. And of course, Elvis listed his top five, and we basically picked movies back and forth. And that's why we decided the first movie would be Tango and Cash. Then we decided the next movie would be The Matrix. Then he asked me to pick, because it was my turn. And I came up with Punchline, because Punchline is my favorite movie of all time. Number one on the list, because it deals the most with stand-up comedy. And right now, in the current era, 2020, uh, most people, if you wanted to hear about stand-up comedy, you would watch the movie Funny People with Adam Sandler and Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill and Leslie Mann and, you know, the list goes on and on. But before that movie came out, Punchline was the first real movie that dealt with stand-up comedy and really told the story of what it's like to be a stand-up comic. So that's why I love it so much. So I picked Punchline. What I f did not know, and what I had forgotten actually, is that Punchline is an extremely hard movie to find. You can't find it on Netflix, you can't find it on Hulu, you can't find it on Tubi, or any kind of Fire Stick, or Roku, or whatever. It's impossible to find. In fact, the only reason I was able to see Punchline and got it was because I found it on demand. If you have Xfinity, I found it on Xfinity on demand and I purchased it. So I own it. Now, if you want to watch Punchline, you can go on YouTube and what you can do is you can rent or buy the movie Punchline on YouTube. Basically, it costs $3.99 to rent and $12.99 to buy. So it doesn't cost you a lot of money. And if you love stand-up comedy, and if you're also a fan of Tom Hanks and Sally Field, as well as John Goodman, who's also in this film, I highly recommend picking up this video. It is a great movie, it is very entertaining, and you will love it. So, because Elvis couldn't find it, I asked him, you know, at some point, would you like to come over to my house and watch the movie? Or you can rent or buy it. Uh, he didn't want to do either one of those things. Um, you know, he, he didn't want to buy or rent it, and I can't say that I blame him, you know, I don't, you know, he doesn't know for sure if he's going to like it or not. Um, and he, unfortunately, we couldn't find time for him to come over to the house and watch it, you know, because of a lot of, um, circum you know, social distancing, but also a lot of scheduling issues, so we just couldn't make it happen. So I said, what do we do? So Elvis said, Booch, you love this movie so much, you should do this segment yourself this week, and then I'll come back next week. So that's what I decided to do, is talk about this film. So the movie Punchline, as I mentioned before, is a 1988 American comedy drama film that was written and directed by David Seltzer and distributed by Columbia Pictures. Its story follows a talented young comic who helps a housewife that wants to break into stand-up comedy. It stars Tom Hanks, Sally Field, John Goodman, and Mark Rydell. The film was produced by Daniel Melnick and Michael I. Rockmill and was released on October 7, 1988. It grossed $21 million in the United States and Canada against a budget of $15 million. So it made a profit. Made like a $6 million profit. It received generally positive reviews as a 56% approval rating based on 18 votes on Rotten Tomatoes. 
So, in this movie, Stephen Gold is a struggling medical student who moonlights as a stand-up comedian. It quickly becomes evident that he is lousy at the former and excels at the latter. And yet, when he is given a chance at the big time, he cracks under the pressure. Lila is a dedicated housewife who yearns to be a comic. She has the raw talent, but does not have the command of craft that Stephen possesses. At first, he doesn't give Lila the time of day. Stephen is derailed by the unexpected appearance of his father and brother, both medical professionals. Lila's unfailing support wins Stephen's affections, and he teaches her the fundamentals of stand-up comedy. Lila has spent her cookie jar money to buy jokes. Stephen advises her to connect with the audience to unveil the honest humor in her life as a wife and mother. Lila discovers her natural gift of making people laugh. An uneasy friendship develops between the two as they share the personal conflicts they must resolve. Stephen's desire to make it big versus his inability to do so, and Lila's love of comedy versus love her love for her family. Stephen beginning to appear emotionally unstable develops a romantic attraction to Lila to her dismay. Lila struggles to remain loyal to her family and her friend while maintaining her conviction and love of comedy. Stephen mimes a painful rendition of Gene Kelly's famous dance routine from Singing in the Rain. The film culminates in a competition at the Gas Station Comedy Club where Stephen, Lila, and other aspiring comedians have have been performing. A judge, a judge's panel of television executives promises the winner a prime time opportunity and possible stardom. Basically a guest spot on Johnny Carson. As they compete on stage, the characters also grapple with conflicts among their desires for success on stage, their loyalties to one another, and the expectations of their families. Pending the judge's final tally with a note of support from her husband in her hand, and hearing Stephen has only two of the five judges' votes, Lila withdraws in case the winner is me, and persists in leaving when the club owner reveals she was in fact the winner. She leaves with her husband, who after watching his wife do stand-up for the first time, is won over, and begins suggesting ideas for her next set. The pair walk away arm-in-arm, reminiscing about the funny and endearing sayings of their children. Inside, Stephen is declared the winner of the show, which reflects Lila's judgment and that of their competing fellow comics. And even though that's the overall thesis of the show, like I said before, I love this movie because it so tells the story of what it's like to be a stand-up because in the beginning of the movie, you know, you have that opening credit scene and then there's that buzzing at the end where Stephen Gold, played by Tom Hanks, wakes up and he realizes he's late for a class because he's in medical school and he ends up having to take an oral exam. Now, on the written test... Apparently, he had scored a 98, which the doctors found suspicious because he had been on academic probation the entire year. So they think someone was sent in on his behalf to take the test for him. And basically, they give him an oral test and they give him something that wasn't on the prep sheet so they can find out if he really does know what he's talking about. So basically, he has to figure this whole thing out and he's trying to sweet talk his way out of it, but they made it clear. If you can't pass this test, you're out. So basically, they give him a list of everything involved in the intestine or in the human body. Like they start with like basically proctology. And they point at everything, and he gives answers to everything. And he seems to know them all. So then, they get to the last item. Which, the funny part is this. it The, the part of the body they're pointing at is called the rectum. And he can't remember the word rectum. I have never been to medical school. I have no plans to ever go. I would never want to be a doctor at any point in my life. Although people say my handwriting resembles that of a doctor. But I would never want to go into that profession because you can easily get sued. But even I know the word rectum. He calls it the poop shoot. As soon as he says poop shoot, they walk out the door. 
And he talks about how he's been working nights and he tries to get another chance, but they realize he's out. So Stephen Gold is now flunked out of medical school. And his father and brothers, they mentioned before, they're all doctors. His father pulled strings to get him into medical school. And he flunks out. And they said, so they said, this work you do at night isn't anything you have a talent for. And it's stand-up comedy. Like Stephen Gold can go on a stage and kill it. He is amazing at stand-up comedy. And he does, like, parties and everything else, and he's very talented at that. But, financially, he can't support himself. He can't pay the rent, he got kicked out of his apartment, his roommate, you know, had issues with him and everything, even though he would still kind of cover for him and forward his calls and everything, so that his pa- that way his parents would, you know, not find out that he flunked out of school. Eventually they did, and they went to see him do stand-up, because at first he's thinking it's a network people, because there's, you know, network people that are coming to see him because they're seeing how talented he is, he's trying to get discovered, and they were trying to find a talent agent to specifically come see him. So at first he's thinking that talent agent's not going to show up. Then he thinks he did and realizes his father and his brother and he has a total meltdown on the stage and bursts into tears and left and went hysterical and and went hysterical. So he almost wasn't accepted into that contest. But the talent agent he was talking to or the girl that knows the network fought to get him on that show that he inevitably won. And the winner would get a guest spot on Johnny Carson. Now what people need to understand is this. For those of you who don't know, Johnny Carson was one of the original hosts of The Tonight Show. Before Jay Leno, before the brief one with Conan O'Brien, before Jay Leno took it back, and before Jimmy Fallon, who runs it now, Johnny Carson was the originator. And during the time that Johnny Carson ran The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson was the make or break for every comic. That was your goal in the 80s as a stand-up. In the 80s and early 90s, your goal, get on Johnny Carson and have a killer five-minute set. Everyone trained and worked and practiced to get that five minutes down to where they would see you, want you on Carson, and you go. Because when you get up, once you're done, this is what happens when your set's done. You look over at Carson, and one of three things would happen. He would either clap, he would give you, you know, an okay symbol, or for those of you who don't know, the Dudley symbol, or the John Cena symbol that he does when he throws his, that three fingers up in the air. He'll give you one of those okay symbols, or he waves you over to come sit down. And every comic wants that wave. That's what they're looking for. If Johnny Carson waved you over to come sit next to him, you were a star. You were the man. You were going to be the next big thing in comedy. That's what everybody wanted was that Johnny Carson set. They wanted that. They needed that. They craved it because killing on Carson got you to the big time. The sad part is when Johnny Carson stepped down and Jay Leno took over, that rite of passage disappeared. Now, the tonight, now performing on the Tonight Show could still get you a good TV credit and might help you out in some areas, but it wasn't a make or break spot anymore when Jay Leno took over because Jay Leno cared only about Jay Leno. He wasn't out to make new stars of comedy. He was out to be a star. Even when he did interviews, he would talk over people, which I found annoying, and he always felt like he had to one-up the guest which is one of the worst things you can do as an interviewer. That's why I never try, I, I try never to do that when I have a guest. I made the mistake a couple of times because I get excited and overzealous, but for the most part, I'm reserved. I shut up. I let the guest talk because I know most people are here to see the guest or hear the guest. Plus, Johnny Carson used to say his greatest talent as an interviewer was his ability to listen. He would wait for the right moment. Sometimes Johnny would throw a zinger in there at the right time, but most of the time, he puts you over. If you told a funny joke, he laughed. 
He let the audience know, this guy's funny. Carson had that talent. Leno never did. That's why that rite of passage died. But you see that story of Stephen Gold really struggling. And he, and Sally Field, you know, has her own thing where, you know, she's, like I said, she's buying jokes, which has happened. People do do that. And also some comedians do have people write for them. Now, certain comedians wait till they get to a level in their career before they actually hire writers. Because in the beginning, you're doing it yourself. But some comedians, as they get older and as they're doing more shows and touring more and having to produce more content, sometimes they'll hire people to help them write jokes. Sometimes they'll be like, hey, you know, write me some jokes or help them polish their material or give them some idea. And then it's like, all right, I think I can work with that and I'll figure something out here. And, you know, some people get hired to do that. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, to have some to help to have a writer or somebody help you out. It's not a big deal. But some comics do do that. You know, there are some comics who write for other comics. And that's how sometimes they make a living in the beginning while they're still developing themselves. It's a good way to make money, you know, or get a or get a writing job on the Tonight Show or on a, you know, you know, talk show or a sitcom and, you know, do certain things there. Like it's helpful, but buying jokes, it can be done, but it's never easy because here's the problem. First of all, there's no guarantee the joke's going to be funny. And also, the key thing about comedy is not just how a joke is written. It's the delivery. That's the key element. Anybody can write a joke down on a piece of paper, but you have to deliver it the right way in order to get the laugh. That's the key. You have to have the delivery down pat. Because if you don't deliver it the right way, it's not going to be as funny. It's not going to hit. So, you know, you have to have the timing. That's the key element of a comment, of a, of a joke. Sometimes you can throw us something in there that might not be funny anywhere else, but if you hit it at a certain spot at the right time, boom, it gets a laugh, and the audience is going crazy. So Lyle's going through all that, and of course, her husband doesn't support it at all, mostly because, A, she doesn't think, she doesn't think Lila's funny. At one point, she tells her, you're not funny. And she goes, if you say that one more time, I'm going to leave the house. Because finally, can't handle the truth. She walks out. And then John Goodman's going, the woman leaving this house is not funny. That woman, that woman right there in the red dress, walking down there with the high heel shoes, she is not funny. Because she's getting into a major argument because, you know, she, he feels like she's neglecting her family by doing this. And, you know, he wants a wife that's home. But, you know, and keep in mind this is 1988. So there's still traditional family value stuff there with the wife being home and the, the husband working. So we're not, it's not quite as liberating yet as it is now. But she's dealing with that internal struggle because there are times where she is being a great wife and a husband. Like she was, like she goes out with Steven, not on a date, but like to learn stand-up comedy and then eventually runs home with groceries and is able to have dinner on the table and ready when her husband comes home with these church people that he could potentially do business with because her husband husband is an insurance salesman and he wants to get their business and church people like to see your family so they have them all dressed in their sunday best even though they're not having dinner on a sunday and what happens is her, her their youngest daughter is trying to tell jokes like her mom and she says i think i have a funny joke and they make her say the joke and she goes what did one cocksucker say to the other one and then, of course, the dad gets mad and blames Lila because Lila does tell some dirty jokes on stage. Here's the problem. I blame both parents for this, and I'm going to tell you why. Always, 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 always screen your kids' jokes before you let them say them. If your daughter's going to tell a joke that she didn't already pre-tell you in advance, don't do it. Don't do it. Shut it down. Shut it down. Because you don't know what that kid's going to say. Ever. 
So you gotta be very careful with that shit. So of course, all this is going on, and then at one point, you know, Steven is doing a show at a doctor at a hospital, and he's doing jokes about being a doctor, and he's he's heckling some, and he's not heckling, but he's kind of like jokingly picking on people in the audience and having fun with them. And then at one point, he takes Lila to a different comedy club that's not the gas station, because that's kind of cool. It's, it's actually it's an actual the gas station is an actual old gas station that this guy converted into a comedy club because he loves comics, and the key thing he always wants is somebody to remember. Him. Like, for example, the Barry Sobel character. He started out in that club, became a success, left, and forgot Romeo. And that's all Romeo really wants. Because he says, you know, the comments complain they don't get paid enough. And Romeo says, well, you guys get famous, you leave, and I'm stuck here. You know, so I just want to be remembered. I want somebody to thank me. You know, somebody to tell me that, you know, I meant something in their lives. And I'm sure Stephen Gold, assuming he became successful in that Carson show, would definitely give back to him. He wanted to be his manager and his agent. And he said, all right, fine, I'll let you do it. And ended up being a great partnership. But anyway, at one point, they go to a completely different comedy club in New York. And Lila goes on stage. And he encourages her to just talk to the audience. He convinces her to do crowd work which he'd never been good at. And he sees Lila come out of her shell and see her start to find herself and also, you know, find out who she is. Because at one point, they were arguing in a restaurant. I'm, By the way, I'm jumping around with this thing. I'm not giving you guys chronological order here. I'm completely jumping around this movie. So just know that. Just because I'm trying to... Just because I'm really excited about this. And... At one point, they go to, he's at a restaurant, they're eating, it's like a diner area, and, you know, they're saying a bunch of stuff, and she looks at him and says, is everything a joke to you? And he gives the best line, he says, nothing is a joke to me, that's why I do stand-up comedy, and that's why you don't. And he basically tells her, you know, you do all these dirty jokes on stage, but is that really you? Are you really a sex pot? Are you really a nympho? Do you really behave that way? Or are you just trying to say that? You know, you're a housewife from Jersey, talk about that. And that's really what it, and that's really what a lot of this is about. It's about Lila finding her voice as a comic and realizing this is who you are. And that's one of the hardest things for a comedian to do is to find their own voice and give their own point of view and find out who you are and tap into that because that's what an audience responds to. The more real you are, the more honest you are, the more that crowd is into you. They can tell when you're not being genuine. And here's the thing. In the very beginning, most comics aren't. Like, I've watched a lot of classic comedy on DVD and on Amazon Prime. When you see a lot of the big-name comics that we know today in the early stages of their career, they're not themselves. They're doing a lot of middle-of-the-road TV comedy, a lot of standard comedy. And then eventually, as they grow into them and become themselves, they turn that corner and become them. And that's when they hit the big time, you know? And that's kind of what I had to do. All I did in my entire comedy career, all I've done is talk about myself. When I first started out, I had a five-minute set. I carried that five-minute set for years, years, because that was my whole life. My whole life, for the first three, four years that I did comedy, was in, was going to college, going to work, hanging out with my girlfriend at the time once a week, and doing comedy wherever I could. So when I started doing stand-up, I was 19. At the time, there weren't a lot of comedy clubs in Atlanta. Today, there's one on every corner. There's so many comedy clubs, you don't know where to begin. Obviously, a lot of them aren't open right now because of the pandemic, but before the pandemic, holy jumping fucking shitballs. You can go to multiple places to do comedy. When I first started, there was maybe three, four, and two of them I couldn't get into. You had to be 21 or older to go to the Punchline or the Funny Farm back when it was open. They wouldn't even let me in the front door until I was in my 20s. 
I didn't get to go to the Funny Farm until I was 21. I didn't set foot into the punchline until I was 22. Before that, I was doing Eddie's Attic and a coffee pl- and a coffee bar. That was it. That was that was all I could do as far as stand-up goes. So most of the time, I'm writing. I did a lot more writing than I did performing. And then once I reached the age where I could hit up other clubs, I started hitting up other clubs like crazy. And I would go to open mics and practice and do all the stuff. But my, That was my whole act, was going to college. Then eventually, I worked in retail. Then as I got older, I worked in relationships. After I, you know, got into a few and started dating, then I started learning about relationships as I got into them. Then I started talking more about, you know, jobs. When I started applying for jobs or doing all the other stuff. And then I started talking about, you know, multiple other things like being fat, being bald. And that took me being on the regular guy's show to get comfortable with doing self-deprecating humor and making fun of myself and working that in. And then, of course, coming up with multiple ideas and being inspired by things. And then sometimes I talk about stuff in the news and I developed this material until I could become me. And I had to find out who I am and talk about my life and my point of view because then nobody could copy me. Because only one Vinny Bucci, ladies and gentlemen. Not a lot of people have the stories I have. And obviously I try to stick jokes and punchlines in between the stories. But what makes it work is the stories I tell are interesting. So I have your attention. And then I figure out where can I put the punchline, where can I put the joke and make it funny. Because funny is the most important aspect of comedy. I don't give a fuck what nobody tells you. I know everybody wants to believe it's about point of view. It's about rebelling against the system. It's about making the audience think, man. Shut the fuck up. The number one most important thing is funny. That's your first, second, third, fourth, and fifth concern. Once you got the funny figured out, then you can work that other stuff in. Yes, point of view is important if you're talking about topical material or certain things. Obviously, you got to have a point of view and an opinion, and that's the basis of your joke. But there still has to be funny involved. You don't just shove your opinion down people's throats. Which is the biggest mistake a lot of comedians today are doing. They're just shoving their point of view into your face. There's no punchlines. There's no joke. It's just boom. Here's what I think. And if you disagree with me, I hate you and blah, blah, blah. There's no joke. There's no funny. There's no laughter. You need the funny because that's what separates a comedian from a public speaker. If you don't want to tell jokes, go be a motivational speaker somewhere and get the fuck off the comedy stage. You're taking up valuable time for other comics who actually want to be somebody in this business. And rebelling against the system? Yeah, if you're a true rebel, that works. But if you're not a real rebel, don't pretend to be one just so everyone will think you're cool because you'll know you're fake in a second. If you can make being a rebel funny, do it. And as far as making the audience think, if you can make them think while you're making them laugh, good for you. But people don't go to comedy clubs to think. They go to comedy clubs to laugh. They go to comedy clubs to escape reality, not have it shoved in their face. Okay? If people want to think, they'll go to school. George Carlin, best example. Yes, George Carlin was a great guy who had a lot of opinions and made people think. But he also made sure you laughed in the process. There are times where he would say a bunch of serious shit on stage and then come in with a fart joke and make you laugh. Or he would go on a rant about people, but he would say the rant in such a way and he would deliver it in such a way that you're laughing along with everything he's saying. He would deliver it in a way that was funny because even he knew Funny is important. Stephen Gold knew that. 
And he got Lila to realize that. And that's what made their their friendship so great. And she was also there for him when he had the meltdown at the club and they were talking and everything else. And he told her, and he, he looked her in the eye and told her, you are funny. You just don't know how to get there yet. And he helped her get there. And once she got there, she became a fucking beast. And then she finally has a sit down meeting with her family and tells her, there's three things she loves in life. She loves being a wife. She loves being a mom. And she loves to make people laugh. And she gave, again, one of the best lines in the movie also comes from her. She said, when you make people laugh, it's like you have this amazing gift that only you can do in your own special way. And I believe that 100%. Making people laugh is one of the greatest feelings you can ever have. It's one of the reasons I like comedy. To see a, a room full of smiling faces knowing you put them there is an incredible feeling. And sometimes along the way, comedians lose sight of that. I'll admit there's times where I've been that comic. But I had to get myself back on track. How great of a feeling it is to make that audience laugh. And knowing that you did it. And that no one else could do it the way you do it. They might be able to make that audience laugh. But they can't do it the way you do it. They gotta find their own way. They have to be unique to themselves. They can't be you. They can try to be you. But they'll fail. They have to find their own way. So she says she loves being all three of those things. And she said I want to be a wife. I want to be a mom. And I want to be a comedian. And... She knows in life she can't have everything she wants, but it would be painful to not try. And she told her daughters she hopes that one day they find something that they love as much as her mom loves comedy. So she gets up to go to the contest, and her husband turns to her and says, Lila, can I see you? And she says, when I come home. He said, no, I mean do it. I want to see you do it. And the kids all encourage her, say yes, mommy. And eventually she agrees, and they go to the club. And her husband sat in the audience. Lila delivers the performance of a lifetime. And her husband's laughing hysterically. That's why he hands that note saying, Our contest is over. You won. Like, he finally agreed to let her do comedy because she re- he realized she's good at it. Because that was another argument. She never, that he would never let, she would never let anyone come see her do stand-up. And, again, I can't blame her. You know, I, I find it awkward you know, went to see people in the audience that I know, like family members and stuff, because then you feel like you can't be your full self because they see you. Even though the first couple of years I did stand up, my mom came to almost every gig that I did. She would videotape them with this, with one of those old school, big ass, say by the bell type cameras, as people would call them. You know, it still had cassettes before the, before the better camcorders came around. And one thing I know is, as I got older, my my mom would come to some shows that I did, but she would then sit in the back so I couldn't see her. That way, it wouldn't throw off my performance, and she could still see what I'm doing. And I would never know where she was sitting. And, you know, I also got the green light from my parents that when I'm on, if they watch me on stage to be me. Hell, my dad used to come out and see me perform a few times. I know I went to visit my dad in Nashville, Tennessee when he was living out there about 10 years ago, around this time. And uh, we went, and while I was there, he went to every gig. And he liked some of the jokes I did. He didn't like some of the jokes I did. He felt that I was repeating myself too much, but I was trying to explain to my dad, these guys haven't heard these jokes, first of all. And second of all, those were all the jokes I had at that time. I didn't have any other material. because It was hard for me to write new material because I was juggling so much at the time. Because I was also juggling going to school school so I'm dealing with tests and projects and shit like that and I was also going to work on the weekend so it was hard for me to sit down and really write anything so I just spent those four years developing that five minute material just developing it knocking it out and getting it down to where I needed to get it and then eventually when I had more time to pursue comedy the rest of my material came with it 
and I was able to make that happen. And, you know, of course, like he said, he only got two of the judges' spots. The other three voted for Lila because the other three comics were offended by Stephen Gold because he would come out and say things and kind of joke about the judges and everything else, most, mostly because he was having a meltdown. And then he talked about one guy and he joked about this other guy being a homosexual lover and everything else. But eventually he won the judges back over. He always had the crowd in the palm of his hand, but he had the judges back over with the rest of his material doing jokes about superheroes and everything else. And he would do a joke about stylists. That was brilliant. You know, he talked about, you know, the comedy stylist. He's like, a comedy stylist? And he would do jokes about like, you know, you're not a dentist, you're a tooth stylist. You're not... Uh, you're not this, you're a blank stylist. And he would go, instead of a barber, you're a hair stylist. And he goes, well, that actually kind of works. And the crowd started laughing. And then he went through everything else. And they would just about how he doesn't hate certain people. Like, I don't hate debutantes. And he would say Hor- all these debutantes and how horrible they are. And while saying, I don't hate this and doing everything else. And then he would, and then once he was done with this rant that had everyone going crazy and the comics in the back are pissed. And the reason the comics are pissed is because they know he's killing it and they know he had the best set. Because that's why you're seeing that comic because they all want to make it. But at the same time, they're all a family and they're all a brotherhood. And that's the beautiful thing about comedy. Real comics form a brotherhood with one another because we know how hard it is. But at the same time, we all want to make it. And there are times where we get a little jealous and we get a little bitter when somebody else makes it that isn't us. And I know that I've had a lot of success in my career. There's been a couple comics who have uh, not been happy about it. They haven't said it to my face, but I've heard rumors. They won't give me any names either. But I know that there was a lot of people that went off on that went off and weren't happy that I made it when I got on, you know, Adult Swim or when I got on the regular guys when I was hitting this these high levels of success. A lot of people were looking at me like, why is he getting that and why not me? And there were times where other people got hit with certain levels of success. And I was like, why am I not there? You know, the the insecurity gets all of us, but they all stick together. Like when the old guy uh, doesn't get picked for the contest because he's old, you know, a lot of people got upset about that, you know, and, you know, he, uh, and he, and he had one of the best lines. He used to sing this song like, you know, remember this night and smile. And he would say, you've been a wonderful audience, but the love of my life is a lady named Comedy. And that shows you the true love they all have for this art form. And like I said, they were, you know, going after one another and, you know, their loyalties, the expectations of their families, their desires for success. So they're looking at it being pissed. And then he finally, Stephen Gold ends his set with, I don't hate anybody. I'm not a hate monger. I'm more of a hate stylist, if you will. And then he walks off that stage and they go crazy. And he kills it. He kills it. And then, like I said, Lila decides to walk away from the contest and a lot of the other people walked out too but here's the thing you know they felt like lila was throwing everything away because you know she tells her husband that she won but he goes well why aren't we inside and she said i've got time i've got you guys because ultimately all lila ever wanted was for her family to support her you know she wasn't looking to go on the road and be in movies and everything else steven on the other hand not only wanted that success he needed it because financially he was going under so Lila knew Steven deserved it more than she did. He wanted that more than she did. And also it was a way for her to thank Steven for helping her find her voice. Because if it wasn't for Steven, Lila would have never won that contest. Lila would have never dominated that stage. Lila, Lila would have never been funny ever. She would have never found her voice. So she, she knew the least she could do is give it to Steven. And also the contest 
from the panel television was they said every week was a key word that I noticed in that movie that I didn't catch before. They were going to have a contest at the club, and they said the winner every week gets a guest spot on Johnny Carson. So even though Lila withdrew from the competition, that doesn't mean that she couldn't one day get back in the competition, win it again, and get that spot on Carson down the road. But she knew Steven needed it. All Lila ever wanted was the love and support of her family to do it, and she got it. Because like I said, as they're walking away, their husband's giving her ideas for material. And hell, I, I know what that's like. I've had my parents give me ideas for material. I've had other people give me ideas for material, like friends and stuff. Because that's, and that's one of the best moments in the movie because you're seeing that moment, everything they ever wanted. Lila found her voice. Steven found success. It was a great ending to this movie. It was perfect. And like I said before, if you're an aspiring stand-up comic, this is a movie for you that you want to watch. I'm sure Funny People is a movie you want to watch as well. And I'm sure some of you have already seen it. But I promise you, no one talks about the nitty-gritty as good as Punchline. It's the original. It was the first movie to really examine the true nature of stand-up comedy. If you want a better understanding of stand-up comics and comedians, and how they operate, and how they think, and how they feel, this is the movie to watch. Funny People does a great job. I'm not discouraging it, but I highly recommend this movie to everyone because it is a true underdog movie. It is a true emotional roller coaster ride, and even if you're not a stand-up comedy type person, you will enjoy the story that is being told. All right, that, ladies and gentlemen, will conclude my review of Punchline. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, obviously, next time, uh, Elvis should be back with me to do another uh, segment of Elvis and Booch go to the movies. And we're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, we will have the review of Back to the Future here on the Boochcast. So you guys sit tight. We shall return right after this.
Hello, and welcome back to the Boochcast. During the break, we played the theme song to the classic 80s movie, Back to the Future, which is what we will be reviewing this week here on the Boochcast. And I gotta tell you, when I listen to that theme song, it really brings back the memories of all the great moments from this great movie that we're going to be discussing here on the show very soon. And it's just, it really gets me excited. I really love the feeling, the adrenaline of that theme song that played throughout the film and the timing of it and everything from the travels in the DeLorean to the prom to everything. This theme song truly encapsulated the entire Back to the Future's trilogy. Now, obviously, we're not talking about the whole trilogy this week on the Boochcast. We're only discussing the first movie. At some point down the road, maybe we'll do part two and three, but for now, we're looking at the very first Back to the Future. And that was the theme song to Back to the Future here on the Boochcast. All right, and now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Elvis and Booch go to the movies. And, of course, joining me here on the Boochcast, you know him as the AEW correspondent. But now you know him as the man who joins me at the movies. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back movie review extraordinaire, the one, the only, Mr. Elvis Delinsky. Let's go out to the movies, grab some popcorn and cookies. Let's go out to the movies and grab ourselves a snack. Yeah! <laughs> yes. Woo! Uh, applause for Elvis. All right. Vinny Bucci, thank you so much for having me on. Dude, it's thank you so much. AEW correspondent. Wait, wait, wait. Never mind. Oh, we're, we're doing the movie thing. Let's bring it back. We're <laughs> going to do the movie thing today, Vinny. How you doing, Vinny? Dude, I'm doing fantastic, and I'm so glad to have you back, man. I got to tell you, going to the movies was not the same without you a few weeks back. So I'm really, really glad that you're here for me on this one, man. And I want to apologize again for not knowing that Punchline was a hard movie to find. I thought maybe with all the stuff that you had on your fire stick, you would have found it somewhere. So I do apologize for that. Hey, 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 listen, Vinny, it's quite okay. There's been movies sometimes, I mean, we have to actively search out movies and everything else. So we didn't really pregame before anyway. We just kind of said we're going to find a movie, and I was like so cocky. I was like, yeah, I'll find it. No big deal. And I'm like, astrology. I'm like, where the fuck is it? Where the fuck is it? And then it happens, you know? Um, you know, and it, it means a lot the fact that it was really hard for you to do a segment without me. It just gives me that much much confidence saying that you need me, Vinny. You need me. I appreciate you. I understand it, and I thank you for it because going to the movies, it's fun and you know the one time um, I was supposed to go to the movies with you um, it didn't take place and I was kind of disappointed too I was like oh man I don't get to go to the movies with Benny yeah man I mean it's just I love going to the movies with me, man. You know, we get to, we, we see the movie sometimes from a different perspective, sometimes from the same perspective. It's just more fun that way. So, you know, I look forward, I'm glad that we got to go to the movies this go around. And uh, Elvis, why don't you tell the listeners out there, which movie have we seen this week? Uh, well, it was a movie not only that we went to the movies to watch, but I actually got my little daughter to watch. Not only did she watch the first movie, she saw all three. We're watching Back to the Future. Ah, yes. Back to the Future. Man, the classic. Uh, a movie that came out two years before I was even born. Wow, I was alive during then, but um, my daughter, she watched them all. She watched the first one, and she watched the second one, she watched the third. Could you guess which one is her favorite? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, Was it the second one? I hear a lot of people like the second one. She loved the third. Really? She absolutely loved it. She loved it so much because I didn't know this about her, but she really likes like the 
these old Western movies, which I had no idea. Um, so it was kind of a hot take for mine. I'm like, wow, I didn't know she liked it. I asked her, why do you like these country Westerns or these movies? And she goes like, oh, two things, Dad. One, the girls wear those big poopy dresses. Yes, And all the horses on it. Now, when I tell you now, we might do part three later on in a different segment. And let me just tell you this. She got so giddy when she saw Doc and uh, Marty jumping up the horses to get into the train. She was literally almost biting her nails off, not knowing that if they can make the jump or not. I haven't felt that way about a thriller or a movie or anything like that in a long time, just seeing my little daughter watching that movie. And she was literally on the edge of her seat trying to see if Doc and Marty could go from the horse to the train. And she was just like, I was, she was like in anticipation. I was like, oh my God, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? I'm like, oh my God. She really has no idea. She thinks every movie that the hero may not make that jump or may not even make it throughout the day. So she still has that vulnerability where she doesn't think that everything just is going to be a happy ending. She doesn't know that yet. She thinks like maybe some movies might be something bad might happen. So it's, it was pretty cool to watch. <laughs> I think Back to the Future has that unique gift because um I know we're kind of jumping around here, but we're going to cover everything. So I'll just jump right to it. I always get anxiety at the end when Marty is in the DeLorean, right? And they got the clock set and he has to hit the gas and hit that, uh, you know, and, and cross the, the finish line before the lightning strikes the tower so he can, so we can, you know, send him back to 1985. And that moment where Doc is like trying to plug everything in and get it all set up and Marty, like the DeLorean runs, like shuts down and he has to like turn the key and kick it and kick it and headbutt it and all this other shit. I always have that moment of, oh crap, he might not make it. And then you see Doc just plug everything in, the lightning hits, and he goes through. But I always have that anxiety, like, at the end. Like, oh shit, is he not going to make it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird, and it's kind of cool to kind of suspend belief. We've seen this movie before. I mean, I saw it when I was younger, I, I watched it as an adult, and I enjoyed this movie. So, um, is it one of my favorites? It is, growing up. Um, so, it's one of the movies that I actually fell in love with, and the thing is, I get to watch it all over again and fall in love with it all over again, because my daughter, she wants the first one. You know how it is trilogies. You watch one movie, but your daughter doesn't like it. She's not going to watch the other two. She loved it so much, she wanted to see part two and part three, and then unbeknownst to me, she loves westerns, and she likes part three. She likes the fact that the train itself became a DeLorean, or the time traveling machine. So, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, because most people, a lot of people, like, you know, traditionalists and purists who love the Back to the Future series, they tend to shit on part three a lot. So... They do. I saw I saw a lot of hate for that movie, and I watched the movie, like, this movie was pretty solid. Um, It kind of veered away. Don't get me wrong, this movie does like to uh, draw from the well over and over again with certain scenarios and uh, reoccurring jokes and stuff and reoccurring sequences, but I thought it was well done for the time period, and of course, that was a great way to end the series, because what else could you do with that movie? I mean, nothing else, you know? At that point, yeah. I mean, it was, and it was one of those things where it, they were being hypocritical at times. Like... They were. In the, in the first one, one of the things you notice is, um, obviously, you know, Marty gets the call from Doc to meet him at Twin Pines Mall, you know, at, at 1, I believe it's 1, 14, 15 in the morning, and he goes down there, 1, 16 is down there, and basically while he's there, they're talking about, you know, the ability to travel through time and all the excitement, and, you know, Marty's filming everything, and he's showing him how the DeLorean works with the time circuits and the flux capacitor, and one of the jokes that Doc says, because he says, like, he's going to to go back, he's gonna go into the future. See the progress of mankind, how far we've all come. Keep in mind, this is 1985, and he's like, I'll get to see who wins the next 25 World Series. So you hear that line, then you get to the almanac, and all of a sudden, they're 
freaking the fuck out about Marty wanting to bring back an almanac. Like, that well, was I mean, that's like, so hypocritical. And, like, I have a theory, too. It's like, how did Emmett Brown make his millions? Because the guy was well off. So, you really think about it, how do you make his money? He went to the almanac in the past, almost fucked up time, became crazy because, because of it, and went back and lost his, you know, lost his mind or something. Um, I don't know. It was just weird. And, I don't know. There's a lot of things. But let's, let's get started with the movie. Come on. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Oh, let's we really are. Movie. Yes, 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 yes. Let's so, start the movie. All right, Elvis. Take us through. Well, don't you have your notes, Vinny? I'm pretty sure, you know, my well-organized uh, person right here would have all the notes for the movie. Oh, I, well, I do. I just, I just like, I just like it when you leave. But if you want me to leave, by all means, I'll do it. Um, okay. In 19, it's so in 1985, it's Hill Valley, California, and um, Marty McFly is at the home in the lab of Doc Brown. You see all these clocks and everything, and he's got a coffee machine that's no coffee in it. There's toast being made. There's nobody there to eat the toast. There's dog food in a dog food bowl, and there's no dog eating the food. So Marty basically walks in and he's been missing for several days. Doc calls the lab, asks Marty to pick up some equipment for a special experiment and also tells him not to mess with the amplifier even though he messes with the amplifier because he jams the guitar goes flying into the, into the bookcase. So that's kind of cool. So he goes to the school. Uh, he gets on, basically gets on his skateboard. He does this thing where he's like holding on to the back of a truck or the back of a Jeep as he's driving. The guy turns and looks, sees Marty holding onto his car and just keeps driving. Like, is this normal in Hill Valley for people to just be grabbing onto the back of random cars on a skateboard and like, hey, take me for a lift. Like, like this is the original Uber? No, I mean, like, and the thing is like that whole sequence right there. I remember as a kid watching this, I always, I always thought two things. Two states were the coolest states in the world. Florida and California. And man, was I wrong about Florida. <laughs> First and foremost. I was like, oh, fuck Florida. Florida was the fucking worst. It's cool to visit, but never want to live there. So that was my idea of what California was. Just these cool, laid-back guys skateboarding on the back of cars. That was my idea of California. You know, Marty McFly, he's too cool for school. I mean, the guy wears a life preserver every day. And uh, I just thought, oh, my God, that's, that's the height of living right there. You know, just getting a ride to school every day. And what a shitty friend is Marty The Doc specifically tell us don't fuck with the amplifiers because what if he was doing something to save a different planet or something for the space-tight continuum and he fucked it up just so he could sit there and play guitar riff? What a fucking asshole. Fuck you, Marty. Well, it, I will say in his defense, he played with the amp before Doc told him, but still he shouldn't have done it. But not only that, though, here's the real question. How the fuck did Marty and Doc meet? That's my question. Yes! How, it, never, it never explained why they're friends, how they became friends. Is he a family friend? It, I mean, did he, was he skateboarding and Doc's like, great Scott, like, you could do a kiss flip? Like, I mean, what happened? I don't know. Like, they never explain how these two became friends, how they met. There's no backstory to their friendship at all, which I thought was very lazy writing on their part. That they just decided not to explain this. The fact that a high school kid is friends with a disgraced nuclear physicist. Like, this is ridiculous. But either way, he has to meet him at the mall. But he goes to the school. Marty meets his girlfriend, Jennifer Parker. And basically gets caught by the principal because he was late. And the principal's calling him a slacker. And he says he's going to end up being a loser like his dad. And that no McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Marty says it's going to change. So him and his band, that's called the Pinheads, okay, uh, enter the Battle of Bands. And they start, you know, playing their music. And all of a sudden, the guy, the guy holding the megaphone, who is a very famous singer, um, picks up a megaphone and says, I'm afraid 
afraid you kids just too darn loud. And he fails. Which, I'm like, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I didn't go to high school in the 80s. Um, was loud music not fun back then? Because today... Uh, what, 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 what kind of music? Loud. They said he was too darn loud. That music sounded pretty good to me. Well, I mean, they were trying to use like this cookie cutter 80s thing, whatever. And Marty was like this rebel, which, by the way, he was not. Like, he was not a rebel at all. So if you're saying a rebel is a guy who wears a life preserver, likes to sketch behind trucks, and plays his guitar amp all the way to a 10 a rebel? I don't know. That's, that's, and the, the music was like punk rock or anything. It wasn't like, fuck the system, fuck your world, fuck your sister, and fuck you too. It was nothing like that. Yeah. It was like, wait, he's a, he's a bad guy? He's a slacker? Okay, okay, TV. You're teaching me a whole different thing on what bad people really are. Because Marty Fly seems like a really legit guy, except for he's kind of dumb sometimes. Exactly. He's just an idiot. So, anyway, he confides in Jennifer that he fears that he will become like his parents, you know, despite his ambitions. Like, what if I'm not good enough? What if nobody likes me? I couldn't handle that kind of rejection. And basically, Jennifer keeps telling him he needs to believe in himself more. And long story short, Jennifer's an awesome girlfriend. Like, she's really, really motivating Marty to go after what he wants and really chase that stuff. So, they get along really well. Obviously, they're supposed to be going to, quote-unquote, the lake. Um, and Marty, yeah, it's Marty, week, for the lake for prom. But I got, I got to pause you right there. Do you remember that movie that Jennifer got into when her dad um, honked and tried to get Jennifer away from Marty? Do you remember that car, that Woody car? It's called the AMC Eagle. Okay. I had one of those. I had one of those. <laughs> you did? That exactly same color, same wood trim on it. I didn't fit it like in '85. No, we had like in '92 or like '93. My dad had one of those. Damn, that and is. That's crazy, uh, uh, man. Did, so at least. At least you were able to, at least you had it for, did you have it for a long time or did it die pretty quickly? Well, we, we had it in, I think we got like a 92, 93, it was a used car, obviously, and then uh, I think, I mean, 92, 93, so I think I started driving one like a 96, 97, and I think uh, it was stolen as one time, I, my dad told me to go to the store and get something, I went to the store, but I drove off somewhere else, I went to a friend's house, because, you know, you know kids, that's what we do, and then um, I uh, totaled it, I rolled it. Damn. I was on a back road, and the, the thing sits pretty high, and then when I was driving in the back road, a F-150 drove past me. The back wind caught me, and I rolled around a couple times. And, uh, yeah, that was a long walk to the next neighbor's house to get a phone call and say, Dad, uh, yeah, you won't believe this shit, but I just rolled the Eagle. Ah. Yeah, I mean, he didn't really care. I mean, he had other cars, but, I mean, it was just, like, one of the cars he saw was pretty economic, but he wasn't too keen on it. I mean, my dad was a, a Cadillac and Mercedes guy, but that, yeah. he never bought newer cars. He always had used cars. So, in 92, he probably had, like, a 75, so it's nothing crazy. He never he never bought new cars. He always had old ones that he fixed, so. Yeah, so he was but one of... Like, I, Go ahead. I was gonna say, so he was one of those dads that like he was just glad you were okay and didn't really worry that much about the car. Well, yeah, I mean, like, was he upset that he lost the car? I'm pretty sure he got sold it for a good profit if he really wanted to. But at the same time, he was happy. I was fine. But I can actually show it to my credit, though. I actually had a car from Back to the Future. That's what I'm trying to get to. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love that. And so anyway, Marty gets back to the house, and his dad George is being bullied by his supervisor Biff Tannen. Um, basically, he, he wants to turn. Yeah, he, he wants. Basically, he wants George to do his job for him basically and they're telling him about how like he crashed George's car and he spilled beer on himself and basically he's trying to get George's insurance company to pay for it. Basically Biff is just walking all over George and George is the biggest fucking doormat you will ever meet in your entire life. And like he spilled beer in his pants and you're like, you're gonna pay for my I'm not paying for your car and you're gonna pay for my dry cleaning for spilling beer on it? I was like oh man what a fucking dick. What yeah. a fucking dick. I'm like that. No, I don't know anybody that would tolerate 
appreciate that shit outside of George. Yeah, and George is like, you know, he's a big, he, let's call it, he's a big plus, pretty much. Yes, and, he is. I mean, I don't know, I'm not sure how to fuck, like, that timeline where they met and they kiss underneath the, the thing, whatever. And that's where I think the, con, the, the conflicting thing is, his parents met and he fought Biff. But it's funny, he goes out there and it makes their parents fall in love with each other again, but then when he, when the same history happens twice, a different outcome came out? Did you notice that? Well, yes and no, because they said that they, they met under, well, they, they kissed at the enchantment under the sea dance, but there was no talk of uh, her being raped by Biff, or yeah, almost being so raped by like, Biff. That like part just showed outcome. up. So it's kind of like, you know, it was like the same outcome, just like some extra small steps took place, and then he became like, well, whatever, we'll get to that later, but yeah. I don't know, there's, time travel's fucked up. So yeah, there's, so right now, so then, and then of course there's Lorraine, who's overweight, depressed, and an alcoholic. Well, and, wait, 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 I want you to think about this. When she's an alcoholic, if you notice though, when she's living with Marty, I'm sorry, when living with George, when he's the, when he's like the doormat, she's drinking like bottom of the barrel vodka. I want you to keep that in mind, so once the you know the history changes, you can see what she's drinking later on. It's a lot top more top shelf than what she's drinking at the current moment. Okay. All right. Absolutely. I'm definitely gonna bear that in mind. So anyway, we get so now, and she's telling the story about um you know how they met and everything, and how she doesn't like Jennifer because she feels like you know girls shouldn't. Basically, she's one of those old fashioned people that thinks girls shouldn't you know come on to guys or ask out guys or flirt with guys. Like they don't like like basically Lorraine's trying to be sophisticated and claiming I've never engaged in such behavior, which we find out a little bit later on about that. So then she starts talking about how she met George and how you know, she nursed him back to health after his dad hit him with the car and he had no idea what he was doing in the middle of the street to this day. She has no idea. Uh, she asked George what happened. George kind of laughs it off and he's basically watching the Three Stooges not even paying attention to what Lorraine is saying as she's recalling this moment where she fell in love with George and it's this and it's the brief moment where she's having a smile on her face and doesn't hate her life. And the fact that all George cares about is watching the Three Stooges makes her fall back into a deeper depressed situation. It was the honeymooners, but yeah, you're pretty close. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it's like, the thing is, like, I want you to notice too, the clothing, what the brother and sister's wearing. He was wearing a Burger King outfit because he was like a manager or he was working at Burger King. The other girl was like hideous looking. She had like nasty hair and glasses. Did not look attractive at all. And she was just like looking around in the empire as she bought for himself with George McFly, who the only thing he wants to do is um, watch fucking honeymooners and laugh like a fucking idiot. <laughs> George McFly was played by Crispin Glover and Yes, uh, and Leah Thompson plays Lorraine, and she has said that the chemistry she had with um, Crispin Glover was amazing. Like, the fact that they both understood their characters and knew exactly what each one had to do to bring about that, b 
belief that these are two people in love and making that courtship work. And she said that, you know, as good as good as good of a job as she did, you need that it's it's like even it's like Stone Cold would say with wrestling, you need a good dance partner uh to work with in the ring. Well, she needed a good dance partner to make that chemistry work and she said Crispin Glover was perfect and that Yeah, he's so underrated. He's he really so underrated. is. He was like yeah, he really was. He was another movie. We're not gonna get into it though. Uh, look him up look him up on IMDb, look at his movies, watch him, love him, and then go go in my head, tell me I'm wrong. Oh yeah. If you need something more recent, he's the uh, creepy thin man in Charlie's Angels. There you go. So the, the, and that's and I'm t- and I'm not talking about the one at the box office that absolutely sucked. I'm talking about the good one with Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu, and Cameron Diaz. He's in that one. So anyway, after we hear we see this scene, Marty meets Doc at a parking at the parking lot, uh, and it's October 26th, 1985. So Doc unveils the time machine, which is built from a modified DeLorean and powered by plutonium that he obtained from a group of Libyan terrorists with the promise of building a nuclear bomb. But instead, he gave them a casing of shiny used pinball machine parts. And apparently, you know, Marty has the, one of the classic lines, Doc, you can't just walk into a store and buy plutonium. Did you rip that off? And that's when Doc tells him what happened. And then, of course, he shows how it works with the, with the by sending Einstein one minute into the future and then, you know, showing off everything. And then he operates the thing with a remote control, which I hate the fact we only see this once. Can I just say that? I hate that. I really wish we could have saw more of that. And I actually found out something interesting about that scene. The scene with Einstein in the car. Einstein, by the way, is named the dog. Um, that's actually the the scene where he's in the car. That's a dog. That's a guy in a dog suit. Really? Yeah. That's not the actual dog in the car. Huh. Now, now it's an actual dog in the car when he op- after at, at the end when the, when the, when the, when the, not the end but like after he re- when the when the DeLorean reappears and he opens the car after it's like ice cold and then he says like Einstein you little devil the dog's in there but when the car is actually moving around and gunning up to 88 miles per hour that's a guy in a dog suit and they did that was oh, a stunt Yeah they did that because they didn't want to risk harming the dog in case god forbid the car spun out of control or went into an accident so they kept, because even back in 1985, you can get more shit for hurting a dog than you can a person. Yeah, I mean, like, that, I mean, that connects with the president, you know, they sat there, and, you know, uh, Doc is out there in his Nikes, which, again, out of touch, guy who lost his mind, he's got a million, quadrillion dollars, probably richer than Trump back then. Um, yeah. You know, he's a crazy lunatic scientist, he has a lot of uh, conventional ways of doing things. That's a, the thing that bothers me is, why did he steal the plutonium, why did he buy it with all his material wealth? He could did it. He could have figured out a way. He's a very brilliant man, but he's really idiotic sometimes too, which makes him, it gives him like a human side to him. Um, and then the thing is, like, it wasn't like he was being fucking conspicuous either. His truck said Emmett Doc Brown scientist on his truck a big white truck in big black letters Doc Brown scientist he's wearing a lab coat in the middle of fucking mall parking lot for everyone to see he wasn't trying to hide at fucking all the balls of this guy if I had anybody after me like not just like the the uh the you know Pakistanians or anybody else or the Syrians or anybody else no the balls of this guy is like ah they won't figure out it's just a pinball machine they're just idiots they won't figure shit out no Doc Brown don't give a fuck Oh yeah. Well, the thing is. I'm gonna call him Doc's Big Balls Brown. Oh yeah. Um, and the thing is, 
one is that he was he says before that the Libyans came to him and wanted him to build him a bomb. So they wanted him to build a bomb and gave him the plutonium to do it. So then he thought, okay, I'll agree to build him a bomb so I can use this for my time machine. So that was it. I think that's probably why he couldn't buy it from them because they wanted him to use it for a specific purpose. So yeah, either right. way, they were going to kill him. I see that logic. That's the kind of beer to give them some. At the same time, say, hey, let me have some. Or let me buy some. You got the goods. I'll make you your bomb. I'm going to use them for myself, too. Because I'm not making a bomb. I'm making something else. I need. I have my own resources as a scientist. Because, obviously, he's a kooky guy who wears Nikes, who wears a Hawaiian shirt, frizzly white hair, and says great Scott every time he sees something amazing, like a run clock go off. So, I'm just saying, it is infinite wisdom. He could have figured out, he could have broken something, but I guess for story purposes, it didn't meet that, um, that and so, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it's just me using logic theory, um, logic, logic when it comes to the storyline. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that. So he so he does all this, and then all of a sudden he's got his radiation suit on because he has no idea what's going to happen in the future, so he wants to, you know, be prepared. Be protected. Yeah. Yeah, of course. He's, he, a, he's a Boy Scout. And he's allergic to all synthetics, and then he says he wants to see, like, what's going to happen in the next 25 World Series and all that. But he's also showing him the controls and everything, and he types in November 5th, 1955. Uh, just happens to click that in because that was a significant moment to him because that was the day he invented time travel because he tells a story. He was standing on the edge of his toilet, hanging a clock. The porcelain was wet. He slipped, hit his head on the edge of the seat, and when he woke up, he had a picture of the flux capacitor, which is what makes time travel possible. And... Yeah. So then, eventually, the terrorists arrive unexpectedly and Doc's like, oh my god, they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. So, they start shooting at them. Doc says, I'll draw their fire! And pulls out a revolving western gun. That's the best way to describe it. Realizes he can't, there's no bullets and he can't shoot the fucking thing. So he drops the gun. They shoot at him. They basically kill the doc right there. Marty's yelling, you bastards! They start shooting at him. He jumps in the DeLorean. He's driving around, driving around, driving around, trying to outrun them. All of a sudden, he hits 88 miles per hour. But before all of this, doc only put one pellet of plutonium in the DeLorean and forgot to pack extra. So that means he would have never made it back. So inadvertently, he doesn't realize it. Next thing you know, he time travels back to 1955 and he crashes into a barn. He gets up and all of a sudden the family that lives in the house comes out to the barn. The door opens up and they automatically think it's an alien in a spaceship because it matches everything that's in this kid's comic book in 1955. And Great product placement. Great product placement. Yes. So he gets out of the DeLorean. He's in the radiation suit. So they're thinking he's an alien. So he takes the thing off and he goes, hey, sorry about your barn. And then he shoots him with a shotgun and the kid says, he's already mutated into human form. Kill it. And they already want to shoot him. So then he, fle- he freak. Marty freaks out naturally. I would too. Someone was shooting at me with a goddamn shotgun. Hops into the freaking DeLorean, starts it, comes flying out of the barn, runs over one of the trees to get out of there, and the guy yells, my pine, why you? And shoots at him. He goes, you son of a bitch, you killed my pine. And you realize that's old man Peabody who owned all the land, the farming land, and who Twin Pines Mall was named after, Peabody, old man Peabody, who owned all the farmland before it became industrial stuff, like shopping centers and malls and shit. That's a story that Doc told Marty in 1985 that before his mom was here, there was nothing but green and trees. So that's a side note. Oh, and uh, I'll give another side note since we're 
already here. Um, and you notice this. At the end, when Marty gets back to the mall, if you look closely, the title of the mall, instead of Twin Pines Mall, is called Lone Pine Mall because Marty destroyed one of the pine trees. So now, I didn't catch that. yeah, I didn't, I didn't either till I went back and saw it and it said Lone Pine Mall and that's why because one of the things that Doc sa- Doc says is anything you do can have serious repercussions on future events. So that had a repercussion. He destroyed one of Old Man Peabody's pine trees. So now instead of having twin pines, he had one. So it's called Lone Pine Mall. And that's that's, 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 that's nice. Yeah, nice little Easter egg. So now, Marty finds himself in 1955, and he realizes he has no plutonium to return, and he finds this out when he pulls up to where his house used to be and realizes there's no neighborhood, there's no house. There's nothing but grass and trees and weed and snakes and armadillos. Because we're in California, folks. It could have been there. You don't know. You weren't back there back then. I could hypothetically say there was fucking kangaroos. You would never fucking know. Yes. So he encounters the teenage George while he goes into this uh, restaurant. And basically, uh, Marty starts talking in 85 lingo. And they don't know what he's talking about. So he walks in. He says, get me a tab. Which apparently, for those who don't know, tab is a type of soda drink. Um, back in the 80s, it was. It was the most dis- Disgusting thing in the world. I remember having one as a kid. It yeah. tasted like fucking clay. So do this: grab clay, fill a little bit of water in it, and then try drinking it. That's what tab tastes like. That's just my own personal opinion. Yeah, and here in Georgia, we have cherry flavored tab and Ugh, cherry clay. Yep. <laughs> Shout out to the GA Red Clay. So, um, exactly. wow, wow, the significance is strong in that one. Oh yeah, man. So um, we go. So they go in. He says a tab. The guy says, "I can't give you a tab unless you order something." So he says, "Give me a Pepsi free," which apparently was a specific brand of Pepsi that existed in the '80s, but didn't really make it past the '80s. It just shows how stupid Marty really is. I mean, I'm sorry, but he was. He only get a tab. What the fuck? Like, hey, you're in '85. First of all, the fact that you just traveled from 1985 to 1955 does not phase you at all. You fucking moron. One, two. You go to your neighborhood, it's not there. You're unfazed. You have this whole moment of grief. You're like, shrug it off, no big deal. Fuck you, Marty. You're a fucking idiot. Three, you meet your father when he was young. I would have been, like, listen to me. My daddy came from Romania. My mom came from Romania. If I had seen their lives as a kid, I would have been, like, in awe. I would have been sitting there staring from a distance, watching them, studying them, seeing how their mannerisms were, and what they're all about. What does he do? He walks right up, you fucking idiot. And then you're using 80s lingo like that's something everybody says. When they get a tab, when they get a fucking Pepsi, you idiot. You can't adjust. You can't adapt to your surroundings. You fucking idiot. Three mistakes. Strikes, you're out, Marty. You're done. Yeah. So then he, uh, so then when he says a Pepsi free, he goes, if you want a Pepsi, you'll pay for it. Because there was Pepsi, there just wasn't a Pepsi free brand yet. So he says, just give me something without any sugar in it. Gives him something. That's when he notices his dad. And then all of a sudden, Biff comes in and he realizes Biff, the whole thing with Biff and George has been going all the way back to high school where he makes him do his homework and everything. And that's where the co- the popular catchphrase, hello, McFly, like that whole thing and all that ordeal and everything else. That's where all that comes from. And then all of a sudden, Marty saves George from an oncoming car later on. But we'll get to that later. So anyway, there's a big argument, big everything. And then the uh, this this guy who sweeps the place says, you know, talks about how he needs to stand up for himself, be a lot more brave. And he goes, I'm not going to be here the rest of my life. One day I'm going to be somebody. And Marty goes, that's right, he's going to be mayor. And then the guy goes, mayor. I like the sound of that. 
And the guy goes, and this is how you know you're in 1955, because the guy goes, a colored mayor. That'll be the day. Yeah, that, that, um, that is quintessential 80s movies for you right there, my friend. John Hughes movies, full effect. Yeah. I mean, it was a Robert, it was a Robert Zemeckis one, but yeah, it's, 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 it, it, yeah. I get it. Yeah, but you gotta keep it. You gotta keep in mind the movie was made in 1985, but Marty trying to travel to 55. So colored was the standard term back in the 50s. That was a that was not that was something that was used a lot back then. So to them it's normal. To us it would be like what the fuck, you know? So and then he goes like I'm gonna clean up this town. He goes good. You can start by cleaning the floor and walks away. But Marty's but Marty realized like this dude who's sweeping up a coffee house is about to become the goddamn mayor of the whole town of Hill Valley. And he becomes he becomes mayor for the foreseeable future, like for years. Like once he becomes mayor, he never fucking leaves. We watch like part two and part three. He never stops being mayor. He's like mayor forever. His kids become mayor. Like it's just like a, a generational thing. Goldie is he becomes like the best mayor that no one's like, oh, you know, we like this guy. Um, yeah, he's a black guy. Um, we're kind of stereotypical Asian people, but we kind of like him. So we're gonna say, yeah, we like him. We like his politics. Yeah. So, big improvement. Fantastic. He's done right by the black people. Way to go. Go, um, 80s that was stereotypical wait till we get to the prom but anyway um marty is now walking by he's trying to find george because he's trying to figure out what the hell is going on so he looks up and he sees george in a tree with binoculars spying on a girl getting dressed across the street and wait 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 wait, wait. you skipped around a little bit buddy i did you forgot a main you, you missed the main part of that yes you did after the whole mayor thing whatever um he tells george he's gotta leave and then marty mcfly he confronts them they got a little scuffle he pushes the guys around he takes a little wooden skateboard and like some kind of wooden tag remember that wasn't that the scene doesn't that happen later in the movie though did it yeah that happens around oh, the time to- so sorry yeah this happens I, way I, later i, 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 I skipped around sorry i'm, I'm going off the cuff here it's, the it's cup, okay it's okay sorry. so anyway so now marty so then george falls out of the tree hits the ground there's a car coming marty pushes george out of the way and marty gets hit by a car the guy gets up george is freaking out now now the dad gets out to see if marty's okay george on the other hand just gets on his bike and leaves ungrateful ungrateful bastard i'm like sorry dude pushes you out of the way from getting hit by a car you don't even take a moment to go holy shit are you okay dude just gets up and leaves what an ungrateful little shit I mean, seriously, like, I'm just saying, somebody... I, I, I know, I, no, 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 Vinny, Vinny, I know what happened. I finally figured it out. I know what happened. Please, tell me. Can I break it down for you? Break it down, because I'm trying to figure this it, shit out. Sure. It wasn't because he fell out of a tree. What happened was, he was in a tree, he was a peeping Tom, he was watching some chick in her brown panties, he had a heart on, his boner levitated him off the tree and pushed him off the tree where he fell down. Now, what happened was, he got knocked out of the way, he had a boner, he was afraid to face Lorraine's dad, so he ran away with the boner. That's what happened. Okay. All right. Boners were confusing to some guys in the 50s. I'll, I'll, I'll believe that. So anyway. That was even worse. It was a fear boner because he was a fear of getting caught with that boner. And the thing is, it was a good boner. I mean, he was young. He was barrel. He was ready to go. Oh, yeah. His fear boner was like, oh, I got to go home. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense. All right. So then Marty's knocked unconscious. He wakes up and he's lying in bed and you can hear his mom's Lorraine's voice as he's like tending to him.
him. So Marty thinks he dreamed the whole thing. And then he goes, about going back in time, he goes, well, now you're safe in 1955. And he wakes up and he sees a young Lorraine who is attracted to him. Let me tell you this right now. First of all, who the fuck? All right, so Benny, you go to my house, we have a couple of drinks, you decide to spend a night. I wake up in the morning, you know, I go up while you had this crazy dream. I was hanging out with you last night, I got drunk. I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's a, it's a, it's a cool day. At least we're still back in 2020. What? Like, who the fuck says that? Yeah, and the whole thing is, he's sitting there, he's in his underwear. Lorraine is, like, getting way too close. She's way too horny for this movie, like... She was like, literally like, oh my god, there's a guy in my house. I need that fucking D. Like, it was in her eyes. Like, you could literally spell like, oh, you got a penis? Oh my god, you got a penis. I need a penis. I need a penis. There's a penis in my house. What do I do? Like, that was her mentality. Like, penis, 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 penis. Yes. I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, fucking whore. And she thinks his name is Calvin Klein because it's written on his underwear. And he, so that means she's reading his underwear. I'm like, what kind of Me Too bullshit is she trying to pull? And this is freaky as hell and then all of a sudden she's like oh my god it's my mother and you realize Lorraine is a walking talking contradiction of herself because she was like I never did any of those things with a boy and meanwhile here she is <laughs> pulling this here's, shit here's, here's, here's a double freaky part what happens in 1985 when she's washing uh, Marty's underwear and she sees those exact Calvin Klein underwear how freaked out and the fact that she sees a guy that she tried to fuck the third like she I fucked in the whole movie pretty much yeah she sees him wearing those underwear and she's like oh my god I tried fucking my son like that, that doesn't feel your mind fuck oh yeah that's probably what she's saying I think what she's doing is like she's defending she's deflecting she's like I would never do that and she keeps like looking at Marty like you're my son I know you are but I knew back in 1955 I don't need underwear she probably like that's before she puts him in a fucking like washer that fucking took up yeah, something happened. But anyway, so she so now they're downstairs. Yeah, so now they're downstairs. Now that now he's downstairs, there's there's he's eating dinner with the family, and um, there's a there's there's a there's a joke in there uh, where he where Marty sees his uncle Joey as a baby in a crib, and he's like, they get used to these bars because Uncle Joey goes to jail a lot. I didn't mention that at the beginning of the movie where they had a cake and they were depressed because Uncle Joey didn't get paroled, so he was still locked in the slammer. So you hear like, yeah, they get used to these bars, kid. <laughs> And then he's sick. Like every, time, every, every, every time they take him out, he cries. It's like he always wants to go back in. Yeah. It's just, uh, it makes sense when you think about it. And then, so anyway, he's sitting there trying to talk and figure things out. And all of a sudden, like, Lorraine starts, like, you know, he can sleep in my room. And then he starts, like, grabbing him around the table. He's like, oh, I gotta go. So he gets the hell up out of there. And then, you know, like, again, Lorraine's still staring at him while the dad's talking about how weird he is. And you hear that line where he goes, Lorraine, if you ever have a kid like that, I'll disown you. Yeah, um, you have a kid that's a fucking info. She just wants that fucking dick. Exactly. And so anyway, now Marty finally leaves and he tracks down Doc's younger self. Doesn't look it, but it is it. Um, so he tracks down the Doc in 1955. And basically, he's trying to invent this mind reading mind reading device. So he's trying to do all these guesses and trying to figure out everything about him. But then he finally tells him, I came here in a time machine that you invented. And I need your help to get back to the year 1985. So he's freaking out, saying none of this stuff works. And he goes, showing him his driver's license. He thinks it's doctored and everything. And then he says, tell me, future boy, who is the President of the United States in 1985? 
and with conviction, Marty says, Ronald Reagan. And he's right. And he goes, Ronald Reagan, the actor? Who's vice president? Jerry Lewis? I suppose Jack, I suppose Jane Wyman is the first lady and Jack Benny is secretary of the treasury. And he goes, I've heard enough stories. Good night, future boy. And then he finally tells him that the reason he knows about him is because he tells a story about the toilet and the clock. And then all of a sudden, finally, Doc believes him. They show him, he shows him where the time machine is. And then he, because it stalled out on him. And then he said that he saw the flux capacitor. He's freaking out because he says, I finally invent something that works. And he's like, now we got to get you home. So now... Now he shows him the, and he's showing him everything. Like he's showing him like the, uh, the, the camcorder, which hadn't been invented yet. And he was like, look, I still got my hair. I'm an old man. It's like, you still look kind of old doc. Um, and then he showed, Yes, exactly. So he's like, "There's a it's a portable television studio. No wonder your president has to be an actor. He's got to look good on television. And then he's like, what am I wearing? A radiation suit. Yes, from the fallout of the atomic wars. He's like, that's not why he's wearing it. But then he realizes that, you know, there's plutonium in there. So he finds the thing like, is this... Is this nuclear? No, it's electrical. But I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity I need. So Doc freaks out when he hears 1.21 gigawatts. He's thinking, how am I going to generate that kind of power? It can't be done. He said, we just need some plutonium. Well, I'm sure it's available in every corner drugstore. It's not. But in 1955, it's a little hard to come by. They said, the only thing that can generate 1.21 gigawatts of electricity is a bolt of lightning. Now, there's one thing we skipped over. I'm going to go back to that real quick, if that's okay. Um, Earlier, while Marty's depressed and hanging out with Jennifer, there's a crazy chick yelling, Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! And talking about how a bolt of lightning struck the clock tower years ago, in 1955. He hands Marty a flyer. Marty takes the flyer, being nice, and then drops a couple coins in their little thing to save the clock tower. Well, Marty discovers and has the flyer and shows that next Saturday night, November 12th, a bolt of lightning strikes the clock tower. So now, Doc says if we can harness the lightning and generate into the fuss capacitor, we can send you back to the future. So Marty's like, yeah, I can spend a week in 1955. I can hang out. You can show me around. He goes, you must not leave this house. You must not see anybody or talk to anybody. Anything you do can have serious repercussions on future events. Do you understand? And Marty says, yeah, okay. And he says, have you interacted with anybody else today besides me? And he says, well, I bumped into my parents. He says, great Scott, let me see that photograph of you and your brother and your sister. And he realizes his brother's head's disappearing because it's been erased. And he realized he interfered with their parents' first meeting. So now they've never met, which means they're not going to go to the dance. They're not going to kiss and all that stuff. So now the brother's disappearing. The sister will follow, and unless he repairs the damage, Marty will be next. So Marty is about to disappear like he never existed because his parents don't fuck. So they go to the school. They realize he has prevented them from seeing each other. Doc warns Marty they must find a way for Lorraine to fall in love with George, or he'll be erased from existence. So Marty attempts to correct his parents' history and warn Doc of the future dangers, but both strategies fail. His attempt to use his parents backfire during a confrontation with Biff, where, and this is the one that I was talking about before, where they walk in and Marty punches his biff in the face and the whole skateboard thing and the and the truck full of manure and all that and basically every time marty has to get in the situation it ends up pulling lorraine away from george and further towards marty huh? i don't know if you wanted to say something because i'm out of breath yes oh my goodness um so yeah the, the whole space i could but they fucked up so much already have they not oh yes totally he's already talked to the so, mayor he's already ripped the page out of the phone book to find the doc like everything's going crazy so they say you step on a butterfly it changes the whole continuum of the space time continuum so they're just space cadets that are fucking dicks to help themselves out that's what the movie's all about it's about self-preservation to make your life a lot better 
because they're trying to make their lives better than what they really are. Uh, you know, uh, Doc has a thing where he was, uh, you know, uh, what was he called again? A crazy professor or... Disgrace. He was, he was a disgraced nuclear physicist. A disgraced nuclear physicist. So he had to fix that. And the same thing, he had to fix parents' relationship because Marty had done fucked it up because he just can't realize what time travel's all about. Um, it's all about them fixing their own future without making too many changes to the things around them, which is kind of fucked up in a way. Yeah, um, it is. I think I, I think Doc Brown would have been fine without the time machine. If you think about this, if you take away the whole cost of the time machine, Doc Brown, disgraced as he was, he have been content living with Einstein, living in a little bubble, and in Mike McFly, he would have been a slacker like his father and done nothing with his life. So it was all about changing their own path. Like, I think it's a cheat, which is fucked up. Yeah, it is. And then, of course, in addition to all this, Marty finally makes it back to Doc's house, and he sees Doc watching a little bit of the video, and Marty tries to explain to Doc that the night that Marty Marty went back in time, he got shot by Libyan terrorists. But Doc doesn't want to know because he's afraid of knowing too much already and doesn't want to mess with the future. So they, so, they, so he shows a little simulation uh, basically saying that he plans to use a wire that he connects from the clock tower to this string that he put across these two streetlights and, and he puts a hook into the back of the car directly in the flux capacitor. So when he crosses the line, when the, when the lightning strikes, it'll send that 1.21 gigawatts into the flux capacitor, thus sending Marty back to 1985. Now, as they're doing all this, I, look. I gotta say, it's funny that every time Doc brings up these little model trains or whatever he does, a model for the city, he always says, I'm sorry, it's on a scale, but it's the best I can do with the time allotted. If you look at the attention and detail for every city block he had on there, there's so much attention and detail with making that little styrofoam city and with the car and the lights and everything else. There's so much attention and detail to it, though. He says, I'm sorry, it's on a scale, I didn't have time, I had to deal with what the resources I had at the moment. That is the most preposterous thing I've ever heard, and yet the most funny thing, because it shows the brilliance of uh, Doc Brown, with him being humble, saying, I'm sorry, it's not up to your standards, as if Marty had any standards at all coming into this conversation. He doesn't care. He just wants to get back to 1985, so... And the thing is, you don't even really need a visualization of what it is. For movie purposes, it works, but I think he really did it just because he knows what kind of fucking idiot Marty truly is. If it wasn't for that whole thing, like, within making the town, and putting the car on it, Marty would have had no fucking idea what's going on because he's a fucking idiot. Oh, absolutely. And so anyway, Lorraine shows up at Doc's house. And this is the part, and this is how you know this is the 50s, where Mar Lorraine, basically in her own unique way, is asking Marty to the school dance. But this is how she presents it. She goes, I was wondering if you would ask me to the, ch to the enchantment under the sea dance. What? Like, that's how proper the 50s is. Could you please ask me to the dance? Like, I can't just say, hey, will you go out with me? It's like, will you ask me out? Like, I, I can't go out with you unless you say it first. That's how fucked up the 50s is. Like, what? Was I the only one that was mind-boggled by this shit? Did everyone else just gloss over it like it was no big deal? I think it was glossed over, but, like, she's pretty much saying, like, would you ask me? Because I will fuck you if you ask me. Like, seriously, ask me, and this hoo-ha is yours. Like, this 1950s pussy is all yours. Like, it's right for the taking. It's yours, son. Clearly. Yes. It's, very, it's, it's yours for the taking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Lorraine's fucking weird. She's a stalker, too, because she stalked that motherfucker to get to that garage. She did. She's like, oh, my God, great Scott, your mom wants to fuck you. He's like, that's heavy, Doc. Oh, yeah, it's fucking heavy. Your mom wants to fuck you. It's fucked up. But 
like call it Dree right here. Yes. So Lorraine asks Marty, Marty, Marty to school dance. So Marty decides, okay, I'll say yes to contain the situation. So then he devises a plan with George where he will pretend to be, basically pretend to, let's just say it, uh, bang Lorraine, like try to like force himself onto her and then allowing George to rescue her. Then he says, you punch me in the face. You know, I'll be out for the count. Everything will be fine. You and guys will live happily ever after. So, and then he's like, say your line. George's like, hey, you get your damn hands off her. He goes, do I really, you really think I ought to swear? He goes, yes, George, God damn it, swear. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? This is where the plan, the plan backfires before it gets displayed. He's laying this off for George. Hey, man, you need to ask her out. She's into you. But has he not picked up the fact that his mom wants to fuck him? Doc even said, hey, your mom wants to fuck you. So he says, oh, let's expedite the process. I'm going to go her. I'm going to push myself on my mom, even though your mom's been giving you the fuck me eyes since you got there. You fucking sick prick. Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> now that you th- uh, what the fuck? Now that you think about now that you think about it, that is true. Like this dude's a fucking idiot. Like you're a fucking idiot. First of all, you can't you, you, you can't assess the situation, you can't figure out your settings, you can't adapt, and your only plan is is the person who wants to fuck you, you're gonna make it a you're gonna make a move on a girl who wants to fuck you. So imagine you're you're, you're talking to this girl. You know she wants to fuck you, but the thing is you're in a committed relationship or you're just like, Hey, you're my mom. I don't wanna fuck you. This is a whole different time period. The time continuum thing is kind of fucked up. Any other circumstances, I'd be on your right on the right. But this girl wants to fuck you, and your plan is to try to fuck your mom because she doesn't want to, which at every move of this movie, she's been trying to fuck you since the first moment she laid eyes. As soon as you open your eyes, she was right there looking at your Calvin, Calvin, um, Klein fucking underwear. She's yeah. been trying to fuck you the whole time, and you're going to make a move, and she's going to say, no, you fucking idiot. Yeah. So, so now he's getting everything set up. He's got the car parked and again, and just like we're saying, he goes to make the move and she is hundred percent into it. And when she realizes it, that that's the moment in the car is where it is where this dumbass finally realizes my mom wants to fuck me because she doesn't know I'm her son because I'm from the future. Now is a sinking in. Now he's fucking scared. But now he's fucking freaked out. But the same thing, you know, you know what makes it even more weird? What? First of all, her brother's in jail, right? Her brother's been in jail for fucking ever, right? Yeah. Let's just break this scenario down. One, and now I'm starting to hate this movie now, not me talking about it. She said when she kissed Marty, she felt like she was kissing her brother. How the fuck does she know what it's like to kiss your fucking brother? What the fuck? <laughs> I think because... Like she said, I don't know how to explain it. I think it's because when she kissed him, she knew something was off, but couldn't quite figure out what it is. No, 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 no. You're looking too much into it. I'm looking way exactly the way it's presented to me. She said, I feel like I'm kissing my brother. So she has experience. She has kissed her brother. She has fucked somebody in her family. That that family is <laughs> okay. Um. Well, you have to look. Well, if I'm you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just. I think. Coming straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're reading a little too much into this one, Elvis. I was. I was with you on the other I ones. Might, I, I might be. I might be. But as soon as I heard that, I'm like, wait a second, red flag. Why do you know what your sister, what your brother tastes like? That's fucked up. <laughs> I that think makes it's... no damn sense. Okay. Okay. Why do you know what your brother tastes like? You know, it's kind of like. You taste like my brother's dick. How do you know what your brother's dick tastes like? You fucking whore. That's 
okay, if we're going to go that route. But, so anyway. That route because that's what I heard, and that's what I took from it. I'm sorry. Okay. I hate this movie now. Like, I used to love this movie. Now I'm not liking it so much. So now we're in this situation, but all of a sudden, Biff shows up to get rid of Marty. The, the, basically, he, he sees Lorraine in the car. Now he's basically going to do what Marty was fake planning to do. Biff is actually going to do. Try to rape Lorraine. So... Well, no, no. He was trying to stop the incest from happening. That's what we... <laughs> He's really the hero of the story. What? Sorry, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go, go, go. Wow. Go wow. I need a minute here. <laughs> the hero. Okay. That's from happening. He stopped me the instant family. Like, no, McFly. You can't fuck your mother. I'm going to fuck your mother. <laughs> so, anyway, they kidnap him. They lock him in a trunk. And I was saying before about wait till the prom. I got to tell this part because I missed this part the first time. Or I heard it, but I didn't really know what was going on until I saw it this time around. So they lock him in a trunk. And it's the band is in there. So this black guy gets out of the car and says, what the hell are you doing? And then he says a line that he should have never fucking said. Oh, my God. I, I was like, I'm surprised those motherfuckers and like something like curb stomp that motherfucker. I oh. And why the fuck are you wearing 3D glasses? Fuck you, you piece of shit. Yeah. So he goes, so he says, back off, spook. This don't concern you. And then everyone gets out of the car. And the dude's got a cigarette in his hand. He goes, who are you calling spook, Peckerwood? You see that? They were shitting their pants. <laughs> Four black... Freak the fuck out. I'm like, what the hell? Like, you got big balls on you. All of a sudden, like, you have some big, like, fucking, like, big, beefy motherfuckers come up. Like, oh, shit. Fuck. And then right. they... And the thing is, like... The- and the thing is, like, they're stoned. You can tell they're stoned, but you can tell these stoners are like, all right, well, we're going to get all past aggressive, but at the same time, like, yeah, you're fucked, dude. Like, just run with your 3D glass. And they actually said, look, man, we don't want to get into no reefer addicts. Because <laughs> back then, people thought potheads belong in the same category as other druggy people, which is... Like which, meth heads and, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's like... Right. And they're like, man, get the hell up out of here. And they run. So those guys run. Then they realize they're lo- the guy's locked in the trunk and the keys are in there. So now we cut back to Biff, who's trapped in the car. Now George, he comes walking over, having no idea what the fuck just took place. And he opens the door and says his line. Hey, you, get your damn hands off. Or, and then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, shit, it's Biff. Oh, shit, is Biff. The one guy. The yep. one, the bane of his existence is right in front of him, trying to fuck the girl he's trying to fuck. And yeah, it's crazy. So he basically, and, he go, and then you hear the other classic line, I think you got the wrong car, McFly. So now he's basically telling him, shut the door, walk away, don't get involved in this. Lorraine's begging for his help. And now George has a moment here. Because now he realizes this is no longer a staged event. This is real shit in real time. What's George going to do? Because the old George probably would have closed that door and left. George decides to say his classic line, No, Biff, you leave her alone. He gets out of the car. Biff now gets out of the car. Him and George are face to face. George goes to punch him first. The guy's now about basically about to break his arm off. Lorraine jumps on him. He pushes Lorraine. She lands on her ass. George balls up a fist, boom, punches Biff in the face. He goes down, just knocks him the fuck out, chin checks him, helps Lorraine up. Lorraine now has starry eyes for George, and they walk in to the dance, and everyone is staring at them. And uh, there's a girl that goes in and goes, who was that? Turns out, I don't know if anybody knows, do you know who that girl was that said that line? 
No. That is the real life daughter of Shirley MacLaine. Really? Yep. I had no idea. Yep. That's two people you brought up today. I had no idea. Oh, I actually found out another one. There's a guy in Biff's gang. His name, I don't know if you remember, Match. Uh, do you know who plays Match? Billy Zane? Billy Zane, yep. Billy Zane. Yeah, I don't know what up. I saw that one. That's the only way I know I recognize. Yep. Homeboy from Tombstone and The Phantom, which was another movie I liked as a kid. Plus, he, was the asshole, he was the asshole from uh, Titanic. Yes. He was the uh, right-hand right man of Zoolander. Yeah, Billy Zane's amazing. Yep. So, Billy Zane's in it. So, anyway, they go into the dance, and now Marty realizes there's no band, because when the band guys were trying to get him out of the car, the dude sliced up his hand. So, now he can't play. So he's saying the dance is off unless you know somebody who can play the guitar. Well, Marty knows how to play guitar. So they're playing the guitar and basically, you know, they're, he's singing Earth Angel. They're dancing. George is now some, trying to sum up the courage to kiss Lorraine, which to me is fucking stupid because the dude just knocked out Biff. Six foot tall guy has been bullying him his entire life. If that were me, if I was a guy that was bullying my whole life, and I finally summed up the courage to knock out my bully who was trying to rape a girl that is now attracted to me. I am fucking that bitch right on the goddamn dance floor. Fuck the kiss. We're doing the whole horizontal hustle. Are you shit me? Yeah, man. I would protect that shit with fire. I'd be like, no, 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 no. I just like that a guy who punished, who put me through hell from kindergarten, pre-kindergarten up until now. I'm gonna have this motherfucker right here trying to take my girl. Fuck no. But I'm just saying, like, how could he possibly be nervous? about anything ever. Like, I would have walked into the dance like a swinging dick motherfucker if I just knocked out the bully of the school in the in the parking lot where everyone sees me do it. Like, I am now King Dick. I don't, I'm not scared to kiss a girl anymore. What the fuck? But exactly. You should you should, you should have had your dick swinging, like, literally, in front of everybody, in front of Strickland, in front of the principal. Yeah. And the teachers are like, well, you know, he, his dick is out, but at the same time, he did knock out fifth, so we're good with this for one night. Exactly. So. This is a, this, this is a, this is a typical McFly, so we're good. Exactly. So, so anyway, there's the awkward moment where this other guy's trying to get Lorraine, and now Marty realizes he's not playing the guitar very well, and he's slowly about to fade away and classify himself as obsolete. But anyway, so anyway, he's about to disappear because they're not kissing yet. Then all of a sudden, George pushes the dude out of the way, kisses Lorraine, Marty Marty perks the fuck back up, he's playing the guitar amazingly, they finish the song, and the romance happens. So Marty's about to leave, but then they convince him to stick around, and Marty McFly rocks out to Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. So, let's stop right there. Do you think, because Mike McFly decided to copyright a song, or pretty much rip a song that wasn't invented yet, play Johnny Be Bad, and and ruin the career of Chuck Berry? Well, I don't know, but he... I don't know if that's what happens, but they know that the guy gets those, Hey, it's Marvin, your cousin Marvin Berry. You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this. So I think that scene is kind of saying, Chuck's going to rip that off of Marty. Oh, oh, okay. So I'm glad you put that perspective. I was going to say, like, hold on a second. He just came with a song that was played by Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry stole off Marvin McFly, which Marvin McFly stole off Chuck Berry and went back to the future just to make it a fucking hit for Chuck Berry to be inspired. So, oh. God, this conundrum was just fucked up. Oh, it's crazy. Also, this also reminds me, there's an episode of Family Guy where they parody Back to the Future and... Uh-huh. And um, at the end of it, Brian is on stage doing the Marty thing, but and he says they want him to do something. So he sings. So, but instead of singing Johnny Be Good, he sings Never Gonna Give You Up. 
and the, and the guy Rick, goes, Rick Rose, yeah. and he goes, hey, Rick, it's your cousin, Marvin Astley. You know that mediocre, generic sound you were looking for? Well, listen to this. <laughs> It was great, and it was funny because Brian's on stage going, "Never gonna give, never gonna give." He just do, he's rocking it out. Also, side note about Chuck Berry: Chuck Berry originally did not want his song in this movie. Really? Yes. And the only reason that Johnny B. Good scene happened was because they paid Chuck Berry fifty thousand dollars. Wow. That's right. It cost fifty grand for Marty McFly to sing Johnny Be Good. Which probably like, you know, probably the more record albums out to it, more royalties to him, so you got fifty grand plus whatever else but they come on top of it. So uh, it's a win win situation. Oh yeah. So then they do all this and then of course he, he sees his parents and, and he's saying goodbye to them and everything and realizing they're gonna be happy and then he says and then he goes, Oh by the way, do you guys ever have kids? And one of them when he's eight years old accidentally sets fire to the living room rug go easy on him I, like marty like like george mcfly is ever gonna take a heart on marty really he's like okay um you know you burn the carpet it wasn't really nice um you know that was a really nice carpet it really put the place together but please be nice here because it makes your mom drink a lot fuck you you know i i, I have a question the guy the kid who when he's eight years old sets fire to the living room rug was that marty or was that his older brother Okay, because I couldn't figure that out. Because I thought maybe he was trying to do that so his brother would look cool. And I'll tell you why at the end, because his brother kind of changes a little bit. So I thought maybe that was their way of changing him up. I don't know. I was just thinking about that. But anyway, so he leaves. So now he gets to the dock, who is at the clock tower. The storm has arrived. Um, So now they're setting everything up, and he's telling him everything that needs to know. And... So now Doc C realizes that Marty put a note in his pocket, which was telling him about being shot by the goddamn terrorist. The Doc tears it up because he doesn't want to know. Marty's pissed about that. They have to go. A tree falls, knocks out the wires. So now they got to go fucking take care of this shit, which, which back then they didn't have like green screens and backup shit, or if they did, they didn't use it. Um, that was actually Doc up there on that platform. And apparently, uh, Christopher Lloyd no like heights. Really? Yeah. So uh, he he did the scene because he's uh he's a fucking committed actor. So uh, he did it. But that was like a holy shit moment for him. So. But he did it. So anyway, we go through all that rigmarole that I said before. He he fixes the engine. He goes through the thing. Gets back to 1985. He shows up in front of a movie theater. Now, as you mentioned before, there was the California Raisin sign that was not read really well. So they got a refund on their money. But what's interesting about this is that if you look real closely, the homeless man sleeping on the park bench uh-huh. is the mayor from 1955. No fucking way. Yep. Yes. Huh. The man who was mayor in 1955, before Goldie would later get it 30 years later, that same guy is on that park bench. Really? Yep. Oh, I know. I, I got. I got. I got eye for a lot of things. We're gonna get in the wrap up. But so anyway, Doc. Gets, so anyway, Marty gets to. He he tries to get. He realizes that the car won't start again. So now the Libyan. He sees the bus driving by with the Libyans, realizing, holy shit, they're about to go kill the Doc. So now he's got to run all the way because he changed the time search to go back ten minutes before Doc killed. Doc was killed because Doc put him back at the exact same time to make it seem like he never left. But. Because 
Doc don't know what happened. He don't know about the Libyans and everything else. So he goes back 10 minutes. He runs to the mall. He's at the Lone Pine Mall. He sees Doc get shot. He has to sit there and wait until everything happens. Marty goes to 1955. The Libyans crash into this kiosk bank ATM bullshit thing. And then Marty comes running over. He checks on the doc. Doc's laying there. All of a sudden, Doc sits up. Marty's freaking out. The doc takes out the radiation suit. And we realize it's a bulletproof vest because he taped the note back up and found out about the terrorists. And he goes, what about the space-time continuum and screwing up events? And Doc goes, well, I figured, what the hell? What the hell? So, <laughs> so again, self-preservation, making yourself better. That's what the movie's all about. Having your having your um, morals and your moral compass drop down at the drop of a hat only because for self-preservation. But not only that, that at, story. after all the shit that happened to Marty, his he figured, what the hell? <laughs> Fucking great. Well, I mean, at the same, well, he probably, this is, this is, this is, this is the way I'm thinking about it, honestly. I think he looked at the video, if he sat there and put a bulletproof vest on and decided to say, hey, maybe they think I'm dead because if you watch early on in the movie, you never saw any blood, did you? No. That's because he was wearing a radiation suit, so all, probably all the people there and never had a chance to actually get himself out. But, if he gets sit there and trick those guys to think that, hey, um, they probably think I'm dead or they get their revenge and they're happy with they shot me 17 times in the fucking chest, that maybe that's all the things they need and they call it a fucking day. So to him, he's like, you know, so I'm thinking about this. It doesn't really change anything. I stole it. I made time travel. I saved myself in the process without really changing anything except for my own mortality. So I fight Doc's line of reasoning, I guess. Yeah. So then they get the they get the time machine fixed. He drops Marty back off at his house and decides to go to the future. And he's going 30 years into the future. Nice round number. Which of course, for those who do not know, is the year 2015. Yeah. We well, were off by one year. One year they were off. One year. Well, we want it though. Yes, so so now Marty gets up the next morning. He goes downstairs. His his sister looks... It's a slight improvement, but not as much to me. I didn't notice it. Maybe y'all did. Uh, the brother now has a suit on because he wears a suit to the office. So now he doesn't work at McDonald's or wh- whatever that company was. Or something. Yeah, you're right. Then he walks through the... That's why I thought the, the living room rug was for his brother because his brother all of a sudden doesn't... Because wa- why would he all of a sudden change? What does that got to do with anything? I don't know. That was weird to me. But anyway... Um, well, I think... Well, I, I do know. I do know. And I'll explain. Okay. The fact that Marty McFly was not... Or not Marty, but George, for that matter. He wasn't a pushover anymore and he actually instilled discipline and spent time and making his kids better because he had a better life due to the whole experience he had growing up and putting his mind to things. It pushes kids to be better than what they're actually living in. Because remember when we talked about earlier that Lorraine had that moment of zen when she was thinking about when she first met George, but everything was around her was kind of shit. Yeah. In the end, everything changed because of George Ply change in his personality, in his confidence, and it changes everything. So when it came to everything else, it went from being a pussy fucking George McFly to being not really a badass George McFly, but more like a more confident George McFly. The guy yes. sure himself. Yes. And the only problem I have with this is like they finally have like uh, this package that comes in and Biff is buffing his car and it boggles me the fact that a guy who tried to rape your fucking wife is like 50 feet away from you at all times. It's Fucked up. <laughs> well, I-, I can figure it out because um. So at first you find out he's now a successful author. He got a new book. His mother's in shape and happy, and and his George and George is all like horny and shit all the time. And you know. Oh, yeah. 
So now Biff walks in. He's like waxing the car because now he's basically become a submissive bully. So I guess because George kind of has Biff under his thumb now, that's why. Like he'll say things like, um, now Biff, I wanted two coats of wax this time, not just one. He goes, I'm just figuring, I'm finishing the second coat now. He goes, now Biff, don't con me. He's like, I'm sorry, Mr. McFly. I just meant I was starting on the second coat. And he's like, ah, Biff, what a character. I've had to stay on top of him ever since high school. So it was like George got the upper hand. So it's like, well, I got Biff doing shit for me now. So that's probably why he keeps him around because he's getting free labor. Because Biff ain't fucking with George no more because George done knocked his fucking teeth out. So it's like a big 180. And then he even tells Marty, hey, you're all gassed up, ready for tonight. And they're like, you're going. And and and, And the mom all of a sudden loves the fact they're going to the lake and thinks Jennifer's such a sweet girl. And he sees the the truck that he wanted in the goddamn garage. What? Somebody... Oh, it's badass. I'm not saying it's not badass. I'm just trying to figure out how the hell is a truck got to do with all this? Because of the truck he wanted, he told he told Jennifer like, "Hey, someday I'm gonna get that truck." Okay, um, they just kind of threw know, that in there. I thought it was like, random, but still cool. So was he was telling like, I, I think when like in the beginning scene when he was sitting there on the bench and then like the crazy lady with the watchtower fucking flyer came out, he started trying to be like, "Oh, Jennifer!" Like it's almost like she was almost non-existent. And he was like almost having like visual sex with that truck. He's like, "Oh, <laughs> Jennifer, I'm gonna fuck that. Bitch. I'm gonna I'm gonna own that truck someday." Yeah. I mean, they thought like he had sex with that car pretty much. That's the yeah. way it kind of sounded like. I'm not going to lie to you. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so now Marty and Jennifer reunite. All of a sudden, the doc reappears and says, you got to come back with me. Back to the future. And then he starts throwing tr- he starts throwing garbage into this fuel tank because apparently that's how he needed fuel. They get in the car and he realizes that um, they have to go back to the future because something grave has happened. They said, what, what, is something wrong with us? He goes, no, y'all turn out fine. But it's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. And they get, and all three of them get in the car and he goes, we don't have enough room to get up to 88. And then you hear the other popular catchphrase. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. And then they fly. And then they travel into the future. And it says at the end, to be continued. But here's another Easter egg. That to be continued was not added until it came out on video and DVD. Until it came out on video. Because in the movie theater... In the movie theater, if you saw it originally in the theaters, you can't find this anywhere else. It's not on the VHS, it's not on the DVD, it ain't on the Blu-ray. This was only in the theaters. It said, the end. Because at the time, they were not sure if they were going to make a 2 or a 3. But, because this bitch generated $389 million at the box office with a $19 million budget, it's going to be a third. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, a trilogy. I mean, the trilogy at a, a good time because at the same time, the nostalgia, everything about it already kind of not really. I mean, it was not where it's supposed to be anymore. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. It, you know, there's only so much you can do with it, and it's already been forced. So there's nothing wrong with it. I think for the time that we lived to watch it, we were fortunate enough to see that fantastic, epic trilogy we had, but it couldn't come at a better time because it had to end there. It couldn't, it couldn't go anymore. There's no Way. Oh, so anyway, and also I found some other Easter eggs, Elvis. If you want to talk about them, some these are ones you're really gonna sure. like. The woman who plays Jennifer in Back to the Future. Get what? Guess you know what other role she's famous for? No idea. That's Jen from The Office. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Say it one more time. Claudia Wells played Jennifer in Back to the Future. She is also Jen, Jen. in The Office. Is that wait, wait? Is that Michael Scott's girlfriend? That's Michael Scott's girlfriend. No fucking way. Yep. 
Yep, that was Jen in the office. And yeah, so she was Jen in the office. And then um, also there were other people up. Apparently uh, she left the show. The reason she didn't come back for two and three is because her mom had cancer at the time and she was taking care of her. You know, I can respect that. I can respect that. I mean, the fact that she would, I mean, like the fact that you have, you have a gold mine, a gold mine on you. And the fact that she decided to do that, though, all respect in the world for her. Man. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, she later came back and voiced the role of Jennifer in a back in the Back to the Future video game, she later reprised the role, but she left at the time to go take care of her mom, and then that's when Elizabeth Shue came in for two and three. And also, there were three other actors that were considered for Doc Brown, and those three actors were John Lithgow, James Woods, and Jeff Goldblum. Uh, we're going uh, Back to the Future. Uh, there it is. <laughs> yep. Oh, it gets better. Because for Marty McFly, before they there were other they had other list of other actors that were considered before they settled on Eric and then later Mar- and then later Michael J. Fox. But they wanted Michael J. Fox, but at the time he was working he was on Family Ties, so that's why he couldn't do the movie. And they finally agreed to open up his schedule. So at the time that he was filming Back to the Future, he would film Family Ties during the day and all his Back to the Future scenes at night. Oh wow! So he was doing. Yeah, so he would go from like like early in the morning to like five or six in the afternoon and at night with family ties, and then six to like one two in the morning with Back to the Future or something. And he would literally sleep in the back of a, a back of a car on a drive on the drive back and forth. That dude was a fucking workhorse during that time. And then also oh, wow. yeah, and also they had actually asked Johnny Depp was considered for the role of Marty McFly, Corey Hart. C. Thomas Howell, Ralph Macchio, John Cusack, and in one of life's most brilliant epic ironies, Charlie Sheen. Really? Yes. The same guy that replaced Michael J. Fox on Family Ties was also considered for Marty McFly. (laughs) Just imagine Charlie Sheen and James Woods. There'd be a, there'd have been sex be... scenes and there'd have been sex scenes every ten seconds. It would have been a porno. I think so. I mean, Charlie Sheen would have fucked his mother, no problem. Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> and then they and then at one point Tim Robbins was considered for Biff. Also, Power of Love, which was played a lot during this movie, was there was the was for Huey Lewis in the news. That was their first number one hit ever. Oh, actually so. Yes, and also if you look real closely at the amp, the numbers on there are CRM one fourteen. Zemeckis picked that out okay. specifically as a tribute to other movies because that same serial number appears in Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Clockwork Orange. And when Back to the Future showed up at the box office, it beat Rambo, Cocoon, The Breakfast Club, and Rocky IV. Oh my god. Yep. Back to the Future smoked all of them. That is uh, something. Oh, yeah, man. I've, I found some cool shit on this movie. I love it now. Especially the stories about Eric getting yeah. fired and being a method actor and the guy playing Biff wanted to kill him. Yeah, this movie, I liked it first and the more I started talking about it, I was like, hold on. I, like, I think I hate this movie now. Um, it was just, it just, it was a good movie. I liked it. It was fun. Uh, it was my favorite movie growing up, but now as an adult, growing up and watching, I was like, hey, that's the thing, too. Never watch the movies you grew up watching because maybe not to be so as good as you thought it was before. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, but the things I know is good. I like the movie. Would you recommend this movie to anybody? Um, uh, yes, I would. If you're not easily offended, because even though this was a pretty tame movie, there are some people that might get triggered by certain plot points. So, if you've got the thick enough skin, watch it. Um, also... If you're going to be willing to see two and three, definitely watch it. Because you need this to understand the other two. 
And if you don't, and if you don't at least watch two, then the ending of one is not going to be as exciting for you. I guess you could say that. Yeah, you have to at least watch it to see what's going on with it. No, I agree with you. Yeah. So I thought it was great. And um, Elvis, um, is that all we got for Back to the Future? Or do you have anything else you want to comment on? Um, yeah, this movie was fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> I loved it growing up. You know, um, the thing is, like, after talking about, that's a weird thing. Talking about it made me realize, holy shit, this movie's fucked up. Like, it's truly like it's truly nonsensical um there's plot lines there's plot holes and i'm pretty sure we didn't cover all of it but just the things that i uncovered during watching this movie and actually writing it down or not really writing it down but talking about it, i was like oh my god this movie's fucked up like his mom wanted to fuck that's that, 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 that's the part that fucks me the most i'm like yeah. oh my god that's uh, that's not so good <laughs> you know i don't care who you are but nonetheless um it is what it is but no i think it was a good movie i would definitely recommend it to anybody who's never seen it that if you haven't watched it i'm not sure where you've been living uh what kind of you know i don't know where you've been living at before but the same time if you haven't watched it before it's, it's a good watch it's, it's a fun watch it's easy to watch um, don't get into like the whole same loopholes we did. Uh, we got ourselves kind of stuck in a little bit though. But don't just take the movie as it is. Don't look too much into it. The more you look into it, the more you see more plot holes, more things. But if you want to do that, just enjoy the movie because I think it's a fun to watch. Absolutely. And uh, so that, ladies and gentlemen, includes uh, Elvis and Booch go to the movies. So I guess the big question now is, what are we watching next week? Well, Benny Bucci, I do believe I picked this one, so I really, I think the favors fall in your hand. Okay, all right. Um, I'm trying to think about this one, and I think I've got a good one for next week. Uh, all right, let's go with, you know, Elvis, as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster. So I say, let's go with Goodfellas. Goodfellas. What do you think? Oh, man. So, I, I, I mean, I think it's great. I think we better set like six hours apart um, for this podcast because there's so much to break down on it. But um, I will take it for what it's worth, my friend. I will do it. Um, I love Goodfellas. I can watch that nonstop. My wife will probably hate me, which I'm pretty sure she does anyway for whatever odd reason. But anyway. <laughs> I would be happy to watch Goodfellas because Goodfellas is a fucking good ass fucking movie. So I will take that challenge and I will watch that movie and we will review it here soon on the Boochcast. But unfortunately, today is not that day. As I mentioned before, these reviews are quite long. We have a three-hour limit. So unfortunately, posting Goodfellas would get us over the limit. So once again, we are out of time. But we will be bringing back the Goodfellas review to the Boochcast soon in our part three Boochcast goes to the movies compilation special. So make sure you guys follow the Boochcast here on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, and Google Podcasts. Pick your favorite hosting site, follow us there, or be a super fan and follow us on all four hosting sites. Also, like us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash theboochcast. We have archived episodes of the show as well as great content for you guys to check out. Also, make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at theboochcast. Get the latest tweets, photos, and videos from the show. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Check out our multiple episodes of the Boochcast Reviews, Dark Side of the Ring. We got a bunch more coming very, very soon. Week after week, we got a bunch of them coming out. So make sure you guys are enjoying it all. Also, check out the other content we have on there. We have our archive watch parties, our D&D one-shot, funny skits, our Halloween video, the Monster Mash. Check that out. And of course, hit the subscribe button and ring that bell to be notified for upcoming content.
Also, make sure you follow us on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv slash theboochcast. That's where we do our live wrestling watch parties. Our next watch party will be Sunday, November the 21st for WWE Survivor Series. That's right. Live at 8 p.m. on Twitch. We'll be doing the Survivor Series uh, watch party. We'll have a special link where you can check out the Survivor Series for free. If you don't want to check out the uh, Peacock, if you don't have a Peacock subscription, you can check it out there. We'll have the bootleg site posted to our Twitter page an hour before the show starts. So be sure to follow us on Twitch to know when we go in live. And of course, make sure you support the Boochcast by going to anchor.fm slash the Boochcast slash support. Become a supporter of the Boochcast. Support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. We have three levels that you can contribute at. First level is 99 cents per month. That's all you gotta do, just 99 cents. Second level is 4.99 per month. The same amount of money you would charge for a Peacock subscription. Some of you guys aren't fans of the Peacocks. You can tell the Peacock to fuck off and bring that money here. We got better content than them anyway. And the final level is you can contribute for a mere $9.99. That's right. Same amount of money we used to pay for a WWE Network subscription here in the United States. You got nowhere to put that $9.99, so come bring it over here, because we got better content than the network anyway, and unlike the WWE, we know how to take care of our fans. And the money you guys give us goes right back into this show. It allows us to upgrade our equipment. It allows us to bring in some bigger name guests, pay our bills, and take care of all the hardworking guys on the air and off the air that work hard to make the Boochcast successful. So if you got a favorite co-host, you believe they deserve to be paid for their work, anchor.fm slash the Boochcast slash support is how you make that happen. And with any money we have left over, we use it to uh, feed Zach ramen noodles and try to get him laid. And until next time, this is Vinny Bucci, a.k.a. The Booch saying keep on living life and take care. This has been The Boochcast. We'll talk to you guys next time. Until then, pizza, baby! Well, I see by the clock on a wall that it's time to bid you one and all goodbye. Goodbye. So long. So long. Farewell. Farewell. Adieu. Adieu. Be good. Stay well. Bye-bye. Keep warm. Relax. Eddie. Take care. Stay loose. Adieu, mon vieux. A la prochaine. Goodbye till when we meet again.